Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is it. My last episode as host of this here podcast that Patrick and I started on a whim back in 2011. We had no idea that it would last anything beyond maybe a handful of episodes. Since him and I are both kind of guilty of starting projects and never finishing them, and we really didn't think that we would garner kind of the response that we've gotten over the years, and it's only increased, the listenership has gone up, and the support keeps pouring in in a variety of ways, particularly through Facebook and social media. Um, I certainly can't thank enough to so many podcasters that the list goes on and on. Um, certainly for the podcasters out there who continue to make great content. Um, I highly recommend Shockwaves um, if you're a horror fan, which continues to be one of my most anticipated um, podcasts to listen to each and every week. Uh, the Great Albums Podcast if you're a music fan, and of course, any number of podcasts on the Now Playing Network, including my new show, Voices and Visions, which uh, will continue um, short, shortly. I, um, I'm settling into a new job and just sort of getting into a rhythm of teaching. So um, I'm just going to keep the interviews through the winter here a little bit low, um, and then things will pick up. But, you know, I, I got to say, Director's Club is a lot of work, but it never really felt like a chore. It, I think Patrick has put it best in the past as it being sort of a, our own form of film school to where, you know, binging on a certain director, we got to learn um, about film from a, a different variety of perspectives and interpretations. So, you know, six six years later, things have changed. But like I said, it's never been too daunting because I knew people would look forward to it. Um, and it just, for me, it just became a challenge that I decided was best to leave for other great enthusiastic minds to take part in um and it's not to say that i'm burnt out or won't be returning for episodes but like patrick i want to place my energy elsewhere into something a little bit fresher a little bit newer um you know i mean maybe the interview podcast has been done to death but i hope to have my own spin on it at least provide my um you know genuine uh enthusiasm and sincerity for the guest but I love film. I love filmmakers and every bit as much as I love music and musicians. Uh, I will always love movies because it's the first thing I really connected to as a kid. I think just viewing experiences, I don't want to binge anymore. That's just kind of my own stance. And I want to just be able to watch things, you know, randomly, freely, and hopefully write about them more. Um, and I'm also, like I said, I'm teaching music and the recording I, recording arts to high school level kids at a private school called Fusion Academy in Evanston, Illinois. So I've just started and really it's a dream come true. So I want to put all my energy and time into that as well because obviously it'll pay the bills and hopefully inspire young minds the same way, um, that in the same fashion that it did for me when I was their age. So you know, maybe the narrative is continuing in a different way and kind of coming full circle, but I really just need to change um, and evolve. And 
Al and Brad, who will be on in three weeks for the next episode on Danny Boyle, are terrific. Their chemistry is great together. They always have incredible things to say. They're a whole lot of fun. So I have no doubt they're going to be fantastic and will present very similar content week to week um, with Directors Club like you've been listening to just different voices. You know, and as much as I love the other guests that I've had on, um, any number of them going all the way back to, uh, you know, Jay Cheel to, you know, most recently Kurt Halfyard and Kate Blair and Al and Colin and Eric. I mean, just an, any number of uh, people. But I would say that as of late, the episodes I've enjoyed most were kind of the outliers, like the Best of 1986 episode with Colin and Eric, or any number of bonus episode interviews, like the one I did with Keith Gordon. Really, um, I want more experiences like that to happen. Um, and it's safe to say that the reason I started this podcast at the beginning was because of my incredibly articulate, smart, and truly inspiring friend who hopefully will return to podcasting in July with Tracks of the Damned. And who knows, maybe in another six years we'll reunite, just like bands do, um, on a podcast, and, you know, maybe it'll be a series of episodes or whatever. You know, I, I imagine maybe he'll have me on again for a commentary in the near future. Him and I will present a bonus episode or two here and there. So it's not like we're disappearing completely, so don't fret. Um you know, I encourage all of you to listen to Patrick and I cover Spike Lee this past year because to me that is the essence. That is the original intent behind Directors Club was to sit in the same room with a great friend of mine and share our passions even if we had different opinions. So that the Spike Lee episode is kind of the Directors Club I always envisioned um even though I've enjoyed talking with any number of people and having any number of guests on over these years. They're, they're the reason why the show kept going. And I know it's been imperfect, like any endeavor, but I, I know now it's going to continue on in the same format, only with two different voices at the forefront. And I will be the executive producer behind the scenes, helping out. And like I said, guesting now and then. So, you know, that's that. I'm ready to move on, say farewell, and go out with another epic episode here with the help of two incredibly gifted podcasters, Bill Ackerman of Supporting Characters and Zach Batante of Film Jive, uh, both of whom I consider to embody the, the spirit and joy that Patrick has had. But I guarantee that Alan Brad will bring to the show the same level of dedication and enthusiasm that we've had. So have no fear, and uh, I'll be probably on the Danny Boyle episode, not participating as much, but certainly jumping in when I can. So with all of this said and done, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to listen, for sticking with this show, for continuing to support Directors Club despite the absence of the original hosts now. Stay tuned. (laughs) Stay with Al and Brad for the long haul. I cannot encourage you to do so enough Support them the way you have Patrick and me will never completely disappear. And you know, my love of film will bring me back to the show from time to time. 
So with all the gratitude my heart can muster, thank you for letting me experience the act of empathy through watching and talking about one of the great art forms that undoubtedly saved my life when I was a teenager. Stay tuned for the end of the show for my final parody song of Director's Club. And now, here is the best of 2016. My last episode as host, alongside two great guests. Sit back, relax, enjoy the show. And once again, thank you. The movies are not uh, an academic or a literal medium. They're a medium of emotion anyway. Yeah. Why do we go to the movies in the first place? Unless we are uh, uh, a very serious French film critic who is here to study the cinema. Essentially, we go to the movies in order to feel differently when we come out than when we went in. We pay our, our money in order to be excited or thrilled or moved or to be made sad or to feel romantic. And uh, the movies are a mood-changing device. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Director's Club podcast. And for the final time, as full-time host, I am Jim Laskowski. This is always my favorite episode of the year, though. Um, I I will say that there are many director-centric discussions that I enjoy, of course. I I enjoy every episode, but there's something special about uh, reflecting on the year that was. Maybe it's because I'm I'm kind of a sucker for nostalgia, but... Okay, uh, you know, it's all about 2016, everybody, and much like drinking, I hate to do it alone. So, I need help. Help! I've enlisted the talent and beautiful minds of two established podcasting savants. One is the host of Supporting Characters here on the Now Playing Network, a voice you know and love and are very familiar with by now. Welcome Bill Ackerman. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you for being here once yes. again. Last but not least, he can he can talk jive all day long. Film jive, that is. So give it up for the verbose and astute Zach Batanti of the Film Jive Podcast. Thank you for having me, Jim. I'm very happy to be here. I would like to clarify... Just to temper expectations, I would describe myself more as an idiot savant. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that show. Was that on MTV, I think? or I, and There was a game show called Idiot Savants, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not familiar with the game show, I okay. have to admit. Okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm making that up. But uh, I do miss Rock and Roll Jeopardy because I was so good at that, and, and I was convinced that if I can get on that show, I would, I would be champion. Um, cause anytime, like I watch Jeopardy and anytime it's movie or music related, I'm like, I'm on it and I got it. But you know, like world history, economics, literature, forget it. Um, <laughs> holy shit, guys. What a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I- um, you know, as always, I like to ask each of my guests about their general feelings about the year that was, I mean, you know, for me, 2016, sucked butt um but (laughs) there was some great movies and great records and of course great podcasts that helped me get through this 
shit show uh, that we can call an election. But po- but politics aside, did you guys think it was a strong year for cinema? And this time I'll start with Zach. Zach, what do you think of 2016? Um, I always struggle with this question uh, just because in general I think most movies released in any given year are generally forgettable. And what we're talking about here are the things that stood out. I mean, I guess as someone who maybe in the first time in a, quite a few years didn't engage with very much, uh, populist cinema Mm. in 2016. So, you know, take whatever observations I'm making with a grain of salt. But, uh, I feel as though what we began to see at least, here in the United States was maybe the film industry's identity crisis being severely exposed. The relentless uh, commodity building with these like revived serialized properties, you know, the Marvels, the star Wars films, even that ghostbusters remake. I, I, I get the impression that general audiences are beginning to vocalize their discomfort with like the constant assault of sequels and the expansion of these uh, cinematic universes, maybe in a more palpable way than they had before. I mean, the question is, are they going to keep paying for them or not? But you know, either way, I not to go get into politics, but I think when I look at this year and say just like the award contenders, uh, I think of a film like La La Land, you know, despite whatever thematic and aesthetic merits it might have, uh, I, I think I look at that movie and it reflects the identity of, of like the classic old Hollywood structure, um, and trying to revive that, like, aspirational cinema, um, that we kind of all grew up loving with American films, um, that seems to really have, become absent in our contemporary blockbusters. So people are like attaching themselves to that film that there is some sense that maybe, maybe Hollywood could be that dream factory again. Um, Whereas then you have a film like Moonlight, which, you know, we label as uh, independent, but still is a ultimately a product of studio filmmaking. Uh, And I think that presents Hollywood with a vision and identity of what it, what it could become, probably what it should become, uh, at this point, um, you know, we can preserve some of the glitz and the glamour, you know, and the aspiration can be achieved with, you know, diversity, not just racial, but also in terms of, you know, re- representations of sexuality, storytelling form. Um, and I think in some ways I look at those two films and I do think it is reflective of than what we saw in terms of the, 2016 election cycle uh you have a constituency that feels very much about maybe salvaging and reasserting some for back of a letter term old-fashioned values of the yesteryear america while you have another constituency that wants to move forward and uh i i feel like hollywood's attempts to try to like mitigate the the tension that exists uh like the diversified casting in Rogue One or the all-female cast of Ghostbusters, uh, those things have failed because they they don't feel sincere. Right. You know they right. they they are it's kind of uh, the Emperor has no clothes sort of situation. 
Um, and then I also think that whatever I think of Fury Road, it doesn't seem that we had that blockbuster this year either, where the, something that was esoteric and subversive enough to still feel like uh, you know the expression of a singular consciousness. Uh, there doesn't seem that there was really that that kind of film this year. Yeah, there, that there wasn't a Mad Max Fury Road that was universally beloved uh, this year in terms of like a blockbuster escapist entertainment that everybody was excited for and both critics and audiences pretty much got behind. Were, were you a fan of that, Zach? Because I'm curious. I, I mean, I, I know Bill and Patrick has re- had reservations about it, but I was just curious really quickly. Uh, in, yeah, no, I fall along in the more in the in the Patrick and Bill camp of okay. things. Well, I definitely like it less upon a rewatch, which surprised me. But it also could just be um, uh, Bill and Patrick's voices in my head manipulating me. (laughs) That's very possible. It's happened before. I'm sorry to ruin the film for you. No, 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 no. That's not the case at all. Great summation, Zach. I mean, that's a an incredible point. Um, You know, speaking of where we are politically, and uh, just those two films are clearly the front front runners to win all the major awards this year, and. They are both universally beloved and certainly being talked about in um, a, a very interesting light. Bill, where do you stand on 2016? I mean, I can only really, I, I, I mean, I could, I could certainly echo some of Zach's points. I, I, I think yeah. for myself, I, I, I entered the year with a, uh, a list already of uh, films I really loved that I had seen at the New York Film Festival last year, like Cemetery of Splendor and Right Now, Wrong Then. And I was looking forward to the year and... Um, I guess I was more busy this year than past years as far as like the amount of podcasting that I did. And so I didn't have as much time to go to the movies as maybe the last few years. But uh, in my own experience, it, it felt like it was a really bad year for uh, Hollywood films of what I saw, um, at least for, for my taste. It seems like it's it feels like more than even last year, it feels like it is just becoming family films and franchise films that make any money and everything else is being um, increasingly marginalized. And I also felt more out of step with um, the uh, the Indie Wood Awards bait kind of films than maybe I had in the past. Like uh, all the films that are the big talking point films of the year, with some exceptions, I thought were good um, I don't, but nothing really grabbed me except for the uh, more foreign films grabbed me this year than maybe in the last few years. Um, like I still found great things, uh, to enjoy, but, um, I, I guess my own taste, I feel more out of step with both the mainstream and the critics than, uh, than I was expecting to. Um, it feels like, uh, theatrical distribution is uh, increasingly endangered. Like most things that I thought were, pretty good didn't really make that much money or they went straight to uh like an on-demand option and or or torrents and i feel like increasingly most of the great films that i saw are things i saw at home or could see at home legally or otherwise like almost the same day that they opened in select cities and i just don't see that as a healthy thing for seeing really great cinema on the big screen um, maybe I'm just being, uh, stubborn and I have to accept that that's where things are going to go regardless. But, um, yeah, I, 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 there's a lot of great stuff that came out this year, but I think overall I'm feeling more pessimistic about the medium. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I sort of fall in line with both of you in that regard, just because I, I too really experienced, um, not necessarily disappointment because like, like you mentioned, there are major award contenders and the films that seem to be very high on people's top 10 lists that I walked out saying, well, that was good, but I just didn't feel over the moon. And maybe it is because I tried to go out of my comfort zone a little bit more, uh, this year based on, you know, some other, you know, letterbox reviews. And I mean, certainly that's kind of my go-to lately is if somebody reviews something like right now, wrong then on letterbox and gives it four and a half stars or more, um, I'm inclined to seek that out over, you know, other titles that even like something like the lobster, I re- I realize that's that's a, a favorite among a lot of people, in which I still feel that you know the 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 second half doesn't hold up as strongly as the first, and the same kind of went for me with uh, La La Land and Manchester by the Sea, in which yes, I will admit there are moments throughout both of those films that I think are spectacular and worthy of the accolades that they're receiving, but consistently I wasn't as engaged or moved as I expected to be. And I think that's mostly my fault <laughs> because I, um, I am privy to the hype machine through, uh, critic circles and, you know, just, just things I read or hear or on Twitter or wherever. Now it's being exposed to first impressions out of places like Sundance or Toronto or any number of film festivals, I wind up hearing, and I certainly heard like Moonlight was going to be the best movie of the year. So when I see it, I'm watching it with that in mind. And I think that sort of hinders. Well, films, films aren't allowed to just be anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's, I mean, again, it could just be the way things are and can't really change it or you'd have to, <laughs> you'd have to pull a Patrick and maybe just drop out of social media uh, period to sort of avoid that. And maybe that would allow for a more pure kind of experience but you know I, and that's not to complain because again like I do think these films are good and if something like La La Land wins best picture I'm not going to frown I'm not going to be you know a, a jerk and say well that didn't deserve it you know because there, <laughs> I think it I think to some degree I, I respect why people are embracing that movie there are things about it there are great songs in it um, and they're just they're just moments where you kind of are dazzled and you're reminded of oh my god the movies this is the magic that i you know felt when i was young but uh, again i didn't feel that consistently through that movie to give it the kind of um high placement on my list that most other people would but uh, yeah i mean and again politically it's a very very interesting time the the moment trump was elected there were certain viewing experiences that i had post that um, that that made me view a movie very differently. Um, you know, even something like uh, during the Jonathan Glazer episode when I rewatched Under the Skin after Trump was elected, it actually enhanced my experience and made me rethink certain things about the movie and just, um, you know, uh, just the way that film deals with um, objectification of, of women and things like that. So, I mean, and even Bill, you mentioned... <laughs> during our Bogdanovich episode, right? About that, uh, you know, that scene in Last Picture Show. So it's hard not to be affected by what's going on in the real world and having it inform 
um, just our escapism. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens next year. But I'm also with you, Zach, in that the quality with Ghostbusters and even Rogue One was not there, even if there were good intentions behind it to expand and you know, diversify and at least try to embrace um, – you know, others something other than just you know uh, a white male demographic, but unfortunately, well, I still think yeah. those. I guess I still, when I say Emperor's has no clothes, that to some degree, I don't, I don't know if a film like Ghostbusters is really challenging stereotypes of female representation. Yeah, or and I haven't seen Rogue One, so I can't speak to it you know, firsthand is from things that I've read that a lot of people seem to respond that the diversity casting was really, you know, a, uh, a way to sell the film, uh, that you have certain people there to appeal to certain, uh, international markets. But just you guys talking about awards. And I'm curious because Bill, you made the comment about, about, uh, not really responding to very many of like the indie darlings of this year. <clears throat> Are there ever years where you you do respond to the majority of those films or the majority of the you know the award contending film contender films? Um, it's it's been a little while since I have, but I mean, I certainly I think when something like the Coen Brothers No Country for Old Men is up for awards, or uh, even um, going further back to something like Mulholland Drive being up for Best Director, or um, you know, I, there's, there's, or even um, something like the Grand Budapest Hotel being up for all the awards. It's like I, I, I could, I could connect with that a little bit more than I can with Manchester by the Sea or Moonlight or uh, La La Land or whatever the Oscar, you know, Oscar contenders are going to be. I think, um, you know, it does happen, um, but it's, I don't know. I mean, this this year is definitely not going to be one for me. <laughs> Yeah, I think going back to sort of the first indie boom um, of 96 with Fargo, I remember being like, oh, I guess I can agree with the Academy once in a while. Uh, you know, because like I wasn't I wasn't thrilled with things like The English Patient or even even post Fargo with Shakespeare in Love. And, you know, just like certain choices by them, I, I wasn't I wasn't on board with. But I think 96 was an interesting year because it wasn't like mike lee's secrets and lies nominated and just like a lot of uh, unexpected and that's that's you know that was the year too where i ventured out to see something like secrets and lies in the city just because of all the accolades it was getting and uh, i i value that sometimes like sometimes when things are up for awards like the indie spirit awards i always check and have a tendency to be like giving them a thumbs up over you know the academy awards but yeah, I mean this this year is interesting. It's you know, especially you know with things like La La Land and Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight all being good films that um I don't know, maybe uh, maybe if I hadn't ventured out and saw other things that uh you know, I mean that's a yeah, that's just a good point I think in general about the award season and how it's how things are going to play out cuz I think there are at least 30 better films in La La Land, but <laughs> You know, if if it wins, fine. It's it's not like you know. It's but again, it it, it would be more on par with something like Shakespeare in Love winning for me. <laughs> you know, um, I don't. I don't think it's that to that. I definitely level. think something like The Artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, the artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also think this was the year in terms of like uh, critical discourse where uh, identity politics really asserted themselves within film criticism, maybe in a way that wasn't as aggressive um, as in mm. the past. Um, I and and I, I think there are positive and negative effects of that transition. I, I think more often than not, though, that ended up really dividing the writer and the reader. Um, and I also think that, I mean, for me, I have personal opinions about this, but I, I also think a lot of writing that I read this year demonstrated a lot of inability to see politics and as- aesthetics as uh, one in the same thing. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I... I it's a very old example, but I, you know, something like Birth of a Nation, for example, uh, who a lot of people will write, you know, thoughtful pieces about, and they'll preface their thoughts by acknowledging, you know, the the horror of of its political expressions, but then they f- praise the film's formal aspects. Um, and I, I guess I, I asked the question, you know, what if racism is inherently woven? into the aesthetic decisions that make that film, you know, the narrative innovation that it is. Um, and I think there's a lot of resistance from critics to address those questions because there is, you know, this debate about... There's sensitivity m- behind that, for sure. Yes, and, and about moral imperative in, in art. Um, you know, if not that this example reflects my opinions of the film but you know if if a bunch of critics come out and they go l is a misogynistic film but i love it uh they're going to be judged by the audience who reads them Hmm. um and so i think i i just got the impression this year with a lot of films that there was a lot of trying to navigate those sensitivities and i don't know that it was successful and i and i and i don't think that necessarily outright calling a film racist and saying that's why you shouldn't like it is productive either uh but you know we live in a political world and i think those things influence everything that exists within them so i think sometimes examining the socio-political structures that this film is being made within, you know, is important. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's even interesting, um, just the response to, you know, what the filmmaker behind the birth of a nation did and, uh, the controversy surrounding Casey Affleck. Uh, cause you know, cause like Casey, Affleck- a lot of those examples this year, <laughs> of things like of things like that. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, again, it's like a hyper awareness we're experiencing, of behind the scenes controversies and things. And, you know, I mean, that's always been there too, to some extent, but I think it's just, there were certain think pieces going around that really strongly felt, um, you know, that, that what Casey Affleck did and, you know, obviously if it's true, then yeah, uh, he's a, you know, a jerk for doing those things, but he's not being, chastised in the same light that Nate Parker was for the birth of a nation. I don't know if it's really just because like nobody slowly, but surely people stopped supporting the birth of a nation as, as a movie, as it came out, I never got a chance to see it myself, but 
Um, the, everybody's still supporting Casey Affleck to win, and you know, despite what went on, and they're looking past that, which is uh, kind of an interesting response that I wasn't expecting once the news got out, because mostly there are like these you know, kind of smear campaigns to some degree with certain films that go on over the years, you know, and that they just try to bring it down as opposed to elevate it. And I just, uh, I always, I always find that strange and because people aren't able to separate, um, art from the individual or art from the controversy surrounding it. So that's, yeah. And I just would like to clarify when I mentioned birth of a nation, I was talking about, the D.W. Griffith film, not, <laughs> yeah. you know, just to be specific. Right. So that anybody listening isn't confused that I was saying Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation is a horrid racist film. I don't know. I haven't seen it. So, but I, I think that movie had a, had a target from the beginning, you know, on it. Um, and yeah. Then that, and the fact that he, you know, really did not handle that situation very well at all just became fodder. So yeah, um it's I think yeah, it's an interesting year. It's a kind of like this I don't know, it's it's it feels like some sort of transitionary year where we we are bringing up these issues on a personal level where like you said Zach, reviews are bringing bringing out the fact that I feel this way about this particular thing and this film examines that, therefore I love it or the 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 opposite. So, you know, it's Again, like I think, I think I mean, sort of the Ebert approach to um, film criticism is a really um, influence, influencing us more than ever. In that, this is my own personal experience, and this is how it should be. And honestly, I think that's that's how I have, it's how I've always approached talking about movies. Is this is me? This is not the objective me all the time saying like this is what makes a film great, and this is why everybody should love it i'm more of this is why i think the film is great and this is why i loved it or the opposite so i think that's how it should continue but again because we're living in such a politically tumultuous time i don't know what the i don't know what film films are going to become ultimately when you know there's going to be a lot of continuing um discomfort with how we're headed um, as as a country, and I wonder if those things are going to come out artistically, because you know, think pieces like that came out after Trump was elected, saying that like, oh, you know, music's going to be more interesting and art is going to be more interesting, and but I think it always has been, <laughs> you know. So you just sometimes have to dig deep, and I think that's the lesson we get pretty much every year. You know, if you're only going to the Cineplex on a Friday to check out a Marvel movie, you're not you're not going to get the um, um, you know the, the the true experience maybe that a cinephile would get when they're going to the uh, you know a place like Facets or the Music Box or any art house cinema. And I'm grateful that we can have that experience. And I know you mentioned this, Bill, but I I I do embrace the convenience of of when a film appears on streaming. Like even some, but then again, I did feel differently in. I wish I could see I am the pretty thing that lives inside the house on a big screen. I have heard myself say the house that holds a memory of a death is the staying place of a rotted ghost. My name is Lily. I'm going to be staying with you from now on. I hope that's all right. I am 28 years old. 
will never be 29. Because we have subcategories. I think Patrick does a much better job of introducing segments. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I think this is this is going to be fun. We, uh, you know, in the past, we sort of just go through every single one. Um, you know, I'll read off what the category is, and we all read off our choices. And if you have a brief comment, feel free. But uh, this is one of the more speedier segments that uh, we've done before, and it's always fun. We'll start out with The Biggest Letdown, a movie that sort of starts out great, then peters out. Um, I think it was initially called... Uh, the movie that gives you blue balls, but I, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of silly. Uh, for me, I already mentioned it, and I know that uh, I'm pretty sure both of you disagree, but I'm still – I got to see it again. But on first viewing, I will say that I loved the first half of The Lobster, but it did sort of lose me, and I didn't feel as engaged by the second half. So for my choice for the biggest letdown is The Lobster. Yeah, mine uh, is one that we, you and I have talked about uh, elsewhere, but uh, Midnight Special was, for me, the film that started off Ooh! really strong, and then the second half, I I was let down, but I, I wasn't as engaged when it uh, became more of a science fiction film. <laughs> You're not alone in that, Bill. You're not alone. <laughs> and then for myself, I have Kate Plays Christine, which mm. I think is a... Pretty terrific movie until its final scene, uh, which I just I could not could not get behind being Same. chastised, you know, for expressing interest in the subject matter. It like turned into funny games in a way, yeah. <laughs> and it just felt out of place. Um. Okay. So the hardest you laughed at a movie, uh, I I kind of I, I decided to tie two choices here because. I would say both of them made me laugh very, very hard. Uh, Ryan Gosling reacting to a dead body in The Nice Guys. And Tony's teeth. Pretty much any moment in Tony Erdman involving uh, his fake teeth made me laugh. So, (laughs) Also the reveal during... Again, it's not a movie I want to go into great detail on or spoil necessarily. But there is a reveal... Um, during a party that also made me laugh very hard in that film. Yeah, I, I for, for me, I that I I had actually my favorite uh, my favorite line and hardest you laughed were uh, the same thing, which is the uh, I don't know if it's funny out of context, but uh, the line of dialogue from Edge of Seventeen. Uh, I look at you and I just see this really, really, really old man. <laughs> <laughs> old man. I don't know, for some reason, it just caught me off guard. and it, it, I don't laugh out loud a lot when I go to the movies, unfortunately. I don't see a lot of comedies that really totally connect with me in the theater, but that one uh, that one did. And uh, yeah, I did want to mention, though, that there are two big comic set pieces in Tony Erdman that were definitely runners-up. I don't want to spoil them because the surprise right. element is fun. But um, And that was actually the loudest uh, laughter I ever uh heard for a German comedy <laughs> seeing that on the, in the uh, New York yeah my uh, my selection might be a little controversial with Jim but there is a moment in Dirty Grandpa <laughs> where uh, 
Zach Efron smokes crack and then he screams, I just smoked crack, and everyone begins shouting USA, USA, USA. <laughs> which I think um is kind of an interesting, you know, maybe political statement in that film. Oh my I thought god. That was pretty amusing. Yeah, well Don't I mean, worry though, Dirty Grandpa will return. Uh <laughs> It's gonna be your number one. Isn't no, it? no, no, no. Oh my god, that would be terrifying. Um <laughs> Man, that's, that would be an interesting movie to rewatch now. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that movie really... Oh, my God. That movie just... I wanted to kill somebody after I saw that movie. I thought it was horrible. But I can understand laughing at its horrible ridiculousness. Um, so the best use of a song... It's, it's weird because initially I was going to go with Just In Time by Nina Simone and uh, Krisha. And then I sort of thought, well, then again, that was used much better in Before Sunset. Uh, that's, that's, how, that's, that's how that film closes in a beautiful way with, of course, the lovely Julie Delpy dancing to that song. So uh, a late choice I'm, I'm going with instead is uh, from a movie I just watched two nights ago called Too Late, in which um, one of my all-time favorite songs is used very memorably um, it's a song by Nick Cave called Nobody's Baby Now. Uh, Bill, you've seen this movie. Yeah, I really loved uh, Too Late. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was rather... It didn't make my list, but I was very impressed by it. Because I really... I kept reading it was like this Tarantino knockoff. But it's, it's really well done and well acted. And I, uh, I especially loved just the, uh, the long take. Well, I mean, there's 20-minute long takes per segment, really. But... There's uh, just that moment where she's uh, bottomless and yeah, uh, yeah. really upset and looking in the mirror and lip syncing at moments to the song, but keeps getting interrupted by the doorbell. So, uh, yeah, Nobody's Baby Now uh, by Nick Cave in Too Late is my choice. Yeah, I, for best use of a song, I had uh, Come Softly to Me by the Fleetwoods used in the final moments of Mia Hansen Love's uh, Things to Come. Oh, good choice. My- yeah, uh, but I did want to mention the use of plain song and Tony Erdman as being a nice surprise also. Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Uh, I might have cheated uh, for this category, but I chose, which is a it's a piece of music that's performed in the film, but uh, The Flowers of the Forest, performed by Agnes uh, Dane in Sunset Song. This is during the wedding sequence in the film where her character begins singing, singing before the entire wedding party. And then there's oh, yeah. a slow dissolve within the same frame that results in her singing alone to her husband. Um, that I think is a very beautiful moment. I have to agree with that. Yeah, I have to watch that movie again because I fell asleep. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I love that director, obviously, but um, I don't know. I think I just watched it when I was tired, and then I kind of just went, oh, maybe I'll get back to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I plan to. I I really will. I, I I'm really looking forward to his next film too. Um. The best line of dialogue, what else can I choose except, would that it were so simple? Hail Caesar. Mm -hmm. It's also one of the weirder moments in a movie theater that I had where I was the only one laughing during that scene. I mean, I I know I saw this movie in kind of like a, you know, conservative suburban theater with a bunch of old people, but uh, I mean, I could tell they hated that movie when it was over but nobody was laughing at that scene 
and I thought it was great comedy. I agree. Yeah, I'd agree too. I agree. What's your choice? Oh yeah, Bill, you already did that. Yeah, the only thing I, I mean, the thing is, I don't, I don't have a way to like write down and take notes when I go see films. Generally, I don't, I don't, so I don't always have a way to remember exact lines for things that don't have a home video release yet. Like, um, there's a film that came out in festivals that I'll be talking about a little bit later that hasn't had a release yet. Maybe this year it will. Um, called A Quiet Passion Ooh. that uh, is full of great lines, but I. Yeah, that's the one I, I can't wait to see. Yeah. Yeah, that's that has a lot of great dialogue in it. Uh but to tell you a specific line, I I, I don't have any and there's no way for me to, to look them up. <laughs> I just saw it once in the fall. But it's it's you know, if I could find a quote from it, I probably would have that. But <laughs> Yes, I'm sure there's a lot of great lines uh in Anna Biller's Love Witch, but oh. you know, I can't remember any of them. Um my yeah. choice is Again, uh, did either of you check out Woody Allen's Crisis in Six Scenes? This no, year? N- not yet. I saw the first first segment, but I, I, maybe tonight I will watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's you know been universally panned, and it's hardly great work. But he has a line of dialogue when he's uh, pitching a screenplay for a television series, and you know you have to imagine Woody Allen saying this in his sort of manic. Uh, manner but he tells them as like a pitch that he i'm very good with texture in terms of writing and i thought that line was quite hilarious so wow okay i didn't hear a damn i didn't hear one good thing about that um series uh the 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 woody allen series Mm -hmm. did did you like it uh yes i did it i'll mention it shortly oh okay (laughs) wow all right well then maybe i will check it out no, don't do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I just, I don't want you to have, you know, high expectations because it's, it's not great. Yeah. So the best action sequence, I had a huff, a huff? I had a tough time with uh, this one. Cause I, were there memorable action movies this year? Really? I mean, I'm green room, I guess. I mean, obviously, don't don't breathe. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't call that an action movie in any case. And I don't. I don't think I would necessarily call the set pieces in there actiony. Um, and I don't remember anything particularly uh, special about the action sequences in the Nice Guys. So I just went with something right off the top of my head, and it's the gas station sequence in Midnight Special. And it's not really like it's more of just like a, a chase, and you know there's moments in that movie that um you know could be considered action set pieces but that one was very very cool for me yeah i had a hard time with this one because i didn't see a lot of films that i would describe as action films or nothing that really jumped out i I think um like there's a 41 minute unbroken shot in the film kaylee blues that like oh. on a film on a film geek level, <laughs> I respond to like, oh, you know, that's like exciting to me, like action, but it's not an action sequence at all. Um, the closest thing I could come up with was uh, like the ogre attack in the the uh, dark fantasy film uh, Tale of Tales, but I, I'm sure I'm forgetting something that is much more uh, traditional action scene. <laughs> but uh, that's what I had. Uh, yeah, I'm a little shocked that I'm saying this, but I. I have the centerpiece uh, siege on the diplomatic compound in 13 hours, the secret soldiers. 
of Benghazi, which I think is beautifully uh, photographed. I, yeah. I think, uh, Dion Beebe's photography, who, you know, has shot f- Spring Breakers and uh, many of the, you know, highly regarded, like, sort of digital films the last few, few years. And I think I do think Michael Bay's ability to delineate space within that chaos is is impressive. The the film itself is remarkably irresponsible, I think, in, it, in the <laughs> politics that it's asserting. But um, I can't say that I wasn't caught up in the uh, testosterone of it. I would agree with that, actually. I mean, that's it's it has some moments there that mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, Michael Bay doesn't completely suck, and it's certainly I'm it might be. His, it might be his best movie after The Rock, but I mean, I don't know. That's not saying a whole lot because I just I'm not a fan of the way he shoots action in general. But in that movie, it didn't irk me as right. much as it has in the past. So the best newcomer, um, and I think a lot of critics awards have at le- have nominated her at least, and that for me is Lily Gladstone in Certain Women. That's a great choice. Yeah. Yeah, I have, um, I don't know if I can say her name correctly, but uh, Mikalina Ozanska uh, from, uh, and I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, but from I, Olga Hepnerova and The Lore. Um, I think... Uh, I didn't know if she was new or not, honestly. I mean, I guess, me. I guess that, yeah, I guess <laughs> that would be my choice as well, because uh, she, ugh, man, what a performance in that. Yeah. It's a difficult category because even someone like Ruth Naga, I think, you know, has done a lot of television work. So it's kind of always hard. What what do we mean when we say newcomer? So my choice, I don't know if, if this person will ever act in another movie again, but uh, is Royalty Hightower from The Fits, uh, the lead. Oh, yeah, from, yeah, yeah. From The Fits. Hmm. Good choice. Okay, for best ensemble, this is probably the most cliche, conventional choice on my list. And even though I'm not as crazy about the movie as I hope to be and as everybody else seems to be, I'm still uh, of the mindset that the, the, the highlight of this film is the acting uh, from everybody, pretty much. So uh, I'm going with Manchester by the Sea for best ensemble. Okay, yeah, I, I can totally see that. I went with um, uh, Happy Hour, the uh, the Japanese film. Uh, is it Ryusuke Hamaguchi? Um, the, that cast of that, I think, was really phenomenal. And uh, the, I'm trying to think if I had a, a runner-up for that one. I think, um, yeah, I did. It was the, uh, the cast of Chevalier and the cast of Hidden Figures and the cast of American Honey are all really strong ensembles yeah but uh hidden figures but, was surprisingly good yeah but happy hours the one i i chose for best ensemble uh, certain women another great choice yeah um I, most nail-biting moment again i i'm sure there are other choices uh that are better or <laughs> that maybe once i hear them will be like oh yeah that is a better choice the uh i will say that the majority of don't breathe, but there's a dog attack that takes place when uh, the lead character, played by Jane Levy, is trapped in a car. That just, ugh, it really got to me. 
Yeah, I had uh, that's a great choice. The um, the one I had is for a film that I want to see again. I really loved it, but it's hard to, for me to re watch it because it only played once in February in New York. But uh, the film Malgré la Nuit, Despite the Night, uh, has a, uh, a scene in the forest at night, like this S and M sex cult kind of situation Whoa. that is i found really intense uh and i did not know where the scene was going and that that's the first thing that came to mind is the most suspenseful thing i saw i don't want to tell you what just came to my mind when you say s&m sex cult I'm like oh my oh man <laughs> it's like I, I sign me up yeah not for a cult yeah. but the movie <laughs> <laughs> for the s&m part of it <laughs> yeah of course I have actually the birthday party scene in Tony Erdman, which kind of eventually dissipates. But I think for the first 10 or 15 minutes, I was, I was like, what is happening? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Like, oh. But it was, you know, it's a great moment yes. because it's also, it deflates all the tension that's building up in that film. Agreed. Um, This is a silly category that uh, I think... When did this start? I want to say this is this is a result of <laughs> of um, when I was on WGN Radio and we came up with subcategories and I just carried this one over from way back when Road to Perdition came out and the meatloaf in Road to Perdition looked so incredible. I mean, obviously that cinematography of that movie is just incredible, but um, <laughs> for some reason, movie that made you hungry. Is, uh, is is still around, and I'm still going to stick with it, and I'm going to go with a not necessarily a lazy choice, but the only one that re- I, that really comes to mind is, and it's just because they're always sitting in a diner together. Uh, Lily Gladstone and Kristen Johnson, or Kristen, wait, oh gosh, Kristen Stewart, um, in certain women, they were always sitting in a diner together, eating diner food, um, even if it was just a hamburger. I don't know. I I, I was hungry watching certain women, particularly the third story. <laughs> Which is silly. Well, Kirsten Stewart has a terrific dr- gesture in the first scene where she picks up the napkin when the f- silverware is still rolled in yeah. and wipes her face. Like th- I think that's the best I've ever. That performance of hers is the best I've ever seen her in in anything. Mm-hmm. I like those scenes quite a bit as well. Me too. Yeah, I didn't have a uh, a serious choice, but um, the fact that the two male leads in Martin Scorsese's silence starved themselves so badly to play their parts. And I saw how thin they were from lack of food. That, that was my choice. Cause I did feel hungry on their behalf, but we had just ate. Like, I know that's 30 minutes before, but so that's, wow. that's, that's a powerful. Actually, I think you're, you're actually right. Because I think when I got home from that screening, I ate a piece of pizza. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know. Uh, uh yeah. the film that made me hungry, uh, right now, wrong then. Oh yeah. Oh sure. Yeah, no that's a good choice too. They do that they're drinking tea and they're eating all, yeah, they they do they do a lot of munching mm-hmm. in that movie. Yeah, after after I saw Silence I went and I just ate a bible. Um it was <laughs> yeah, it was I don't know but we'll get to that too. So most underrated. Um I actually just I rarely do this thing on Facebook where it's like, I'm watching this, or you should watch this, here's a poster, or, you know, that ridiculous thing where you check in, and I don't know. I, lots of people do that. That's cool. That's fine. It's fun to, uh, you know, comment on, like, guess what I'm watching right now, guys? 
but for the first time in a long time, I just decided I want people to watch this damn movie. And that would be The Childhood of a Leader by Brady Corbett. It's on Netflix. So that is my choice for most underrated. And my runner-up for that would be A Monster Calls. Hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly love Childhood of a Leader. I think I went with one that at least the more 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 people hate this film than like this film in my own social circle. Um, so I felt like sticking up for a pretty widely liked film in some corners of Letterboxd, but The Neon Demon is the film that I chose, because I feel like that film uh, might be a great film, but I, I'm pretty much in the minority in my social circle is thinking it's even halfway good, because it seems to get the most uh, hatred of anything <laughs> that came out last year mm. from a major director. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. Uh, I also kind of split this between Woody Allen's Crisis in Six Scenes <laughs> and then uh, Valley of Love. Oh, yeah. Uh, with Gerard Depardieu and Isabelle Huppert. I mean, oh, everyone. Oh, yeah, I need to see that. That's great. Talking about Isabelle Huppert this year and her two great performances. And I might be in the minority that I think I prefer her performance in this more so than the other two. Um, but Crisis in Six Scenes. Like I said, hardly great work of Woody Allen's, but I do think it was severely maligned. And I, you know, I, Woody Allen himself has kind of <laughs> expressed that he sort of abandoned it in some regards. Um, but I do think there is something curious uh, about him experimenting with the form of farce and uh, with sort of new dialogic rhythms and. He's very much interested in sort of scrutinizing political rhetoric, uh, even if his revelations are kind of obvious. Okay. Um, but I, I, you know, I have not been a fan of Woody Allen's films. Really, I would say everything post Vicky Cristina Barcelona, I've not responded to. Even the like the critical darlings of something like Midnight in Paris and Blue Jasmine. I ultimately was a little underwhelmed by. Um, so I think I like this more, not because I think it's necessarily strong work, uh, but I think it's interesting to watch him work in that format. And, you know, he's Elaine May and Miley Cyrus, who is comes out perhaps as uh, the whole thing as the, the strongest performer <laughs> in some Whoa. ways. Um, but it's also, she's not... To be fair, she's not really given the proper context in some ways. It, it doesn't seem like Woody Allen was very specific in his crafting of the whole thing. But I enjoyed it. It's it's like Woody Allen's getting woke as, you know, as the new buzzword of the day. So watch Crisis in Six Scenes and get woke. <laughs> um, my next one for... Mo- for most overrated, I'm just going to say it and move right along. La La Land. Yeah, I I went with uh, the Jeff Nichols film Loving, um, which I, I think, yeah. Aww. I think that one is cruel. What yeah, what's, what's going on? What's, yeah. You and Jeff Nichols aren't getting along anymore. Yeah, I guess not. Oh. Um, I thought it was very polite <laughs> and very inert. Uh Film. I, I, I mean, it's a nice message, but it feels like there's not really a whole lot of life to it. And um, yeah, 
don't have much more to say about it. <laughs> this category is very difficult for me because as I'm looking at it on my computer screen, I have six films listed. Oh, go for it, dude. Uh, okay, so I have The Handmaiden, Ooh, uh, Park Chan-wook's film, uh, Sing Street, uh, American Honey, The Witch, <laughs> OJ Made in America, Whoa. and Arrival. <sighs> so I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about later. <laughs> yeah, I think we might. Oh, okay. Let's move on to biggest surprise. I guess. Um, I guess for me, the Edge of Seventeen, because I don't know. I saw the trailer, wasn't too interested, and then all these raves are coming out, and you know, I'm not even the biggest Haley Steinfeld fan. Uh, I mean, she was fine in True Grit, but I, I certainly haven't kept up with her in any capacity. And uh, I mean, I think the the most recent notable thing she's done is have a music career and put out a song about how she masturbates. And uh, but I miss this. Yeah, you won't get on that guy. Uh, um, Edge of Seventeen was pretty damn great. I gotta say, it's. Uh, I guess I'm calling it the perks of a, of being a wallflower choice this year because it's one of those movies where like yeah if you don't really love it the way i love it that's fine i understand but it just it's just one of those great coming of age adolescent stories that uh really spoke to me and uh, i found both emotionally satisfying and very funny how about you bill uh, for me, the biggest surprise, I, I guess it, I would say I Olga Hepnerova because that really just felt like it came right out of nowhere to become, you know, a key film for me for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, although I would also add uh, my expectations for the movie Too Late were not that high. And yeah, that one a was choice. a very nice, nice surprise as well. Even if it isn't on my list, it's, uh, you know, one that I really liked a lot. Yeah. And I, I was expecting nothing at all from it. <laughs> Um, my greatest surprise is actually Camera Person, which is significant to understand that in the context of seeing it, I, at the time I was working at uh, American Documentary POV, the TV series on PBS, and I was consuming, say, four or five documentaries a day uh, in the programming department and uh, watching a lot of kind of terrible social issue documentaries. Um, And then seeing that was such a relief. And, you know, it's also a surprise because a lot of the films that, say, Kirsten Johnson is the cinematographer for, I don't necessarily think that highly of. Um, And so to see her take sort of this unused footage and reappropriate it in, I think, this really moving and profound way was a great surprise to me. We'll get to that one later, I'm sure. Most romantic shot slash moment. Um, you know, it's I, I'm going to go with the final moments of Moonlight. Uh, I mean, there. It's funny because like there are people who really don't like the fact that it's so reserved, and you know, I don't know what they, I don't know if they wanted this to go Brokeback Mountain or something, but. I uh, I appreciated it just to see them kind of embrace at the very end that um, it was a great note to leave those characters on, I thought. So I'm going with the final moment of Moonlight for the most romantic shot. Yeah, I had, um, I guess I had the the, uh, the moment in Too Late uh, with the, um, 
like the nightclub sequence, the dialogue scene, I felt was that for some reason that lingered for me. And also the, uh, the first romantic scene, uh, in Iolga Hepnarova. Oh yeah. But, but, uh, very memorable yeah, this, indeed. Yeah. Those, those what I had. Uh, so I had the, uh, sex scene between Robert De Niro and Aubrey Plaza from Dirty. No, Grandpa. you didn't. Yes. I'm joking. Okay. Uh, n- no, the, uh, horseback riding scene in certain women, uh, where mm-hmm. Chris and Stewart mounts the horse and then they start riding. And as they're actually riding, there's like a street light that sort of casts this lens flare, um, into the, into the lens that kind of almost creates this spiritual feeling that I thought was very romantic. Oh, yeah, that whole, mm, that whole segment. Okay. Um, moment that made you cry the hardest. Sorry, Zach, but, um, the (laughs) ending of arrival and pretty much tied with a movie I saw last night. A Monster Calls. The ending of both of those movies destroyed me. The end. Yeah, I had um, the uh, the scene uh, in Manchester by the Sea. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a heated exchange uh, between Michelle Williams and, and Casey Affleck. Um, I, I had mixed... I, I liked Manchester by the Sea. I, I didn't love it. I, I liked it okay, but that scene I thought was really powerful. Yes, Best scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, I have the scene in Loving, you know, the most overrated film of 2016, <laughs> according to Bill Ackerman, yeah. uh, where Je- uh, Joel Edgerton comes in after being out late in the I can take care of you uh, moment. Oh, yeah. I think it's a very moving uh, scene. Okay, now... I know romantic and sexy can kind of get intermingled a little bit because, uh, yeah, I mean, say what you will. I mean, I think, I think Patrick and I, when, when we saw this movie together, we both, we both felt that certain scenes in this movie kind of went on a little bit too long, but, uh, I have, I have, I have a few complaints about, uh, a sex scene between, uh, two very lovely women in the handmaiden. Mm. That's uh that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the sexy shot moment. I actually had the 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 uh, the scene, the cleaning of the mouth scene in the Handmaiden. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, so I actually have the Rubik's cube gag in Snowden, <laughs> 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 which might be like the most ridiculous shot of like geek fetish in the history of cinema. I really had a hard time coming up with something, and I thought <laughs> there's probably a lot of people who saw this and thought it was really sexy. Hmm. Well, hit, hit, you know his impression of Edward Snowden, that voice. Oh God. Yeah. Okay. Um, now this one in the past, because it's very possible that the your choice could give away your choice for best film. Um. You are free to plead to take to take the fifth, abstain from revealing your answer here. But if you feel it doesn't give away your number one choice, then go ahead and reveal your choice. For my choice for best director, oh boy, here we go. Denis Villeneuve. 
That's mm. yeah, that's that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I'm a huge fan of. He his. didn't even have to direct anything, huh? It was yeah. That's it. He just has to exist, <laughs> right? No, I just I've been a fan of him since Polytechnique, and I, I mean I don't I I think Prisoners is still his weakest film in my mind, but uh, I've loved everything this guy has done, and uh, you know we'll we'll get to a huge reason why uh, I decided to choose him. But go ahead, guys. What wh- what do you say for best director? Well, I had um, I had Hong Sang Soo because he had two films that would be on my list. Um, yeah, but um, I did want to you know say sentimental you know because we lost uh, two great directors um, that had uh, films that came out this year. Chantal Ackerman passed away last year, but No Home Movie came out this year, mm. and uh, and Andrzej Zhivowski with Cosmos uh, who passed away only a few days before I saw it. Uh, which definitely shaped how that film played for me the first time I saw it. I so, bet. Yeah. And to see it, well, we'll get into that later. But uh, but yeah, so Hong Sang-soo, because and him and Terrence Davies both had uh, two very good films uh, that I saw this year. So it was kind of a flip a coin between the two. But So I went with uh, Hong Sang-soo. I have Kelly Reichert for Certain Women, which we will talk about later. Splendid. That's a very good choice, Zach. I, I, I endorse. I endorse I endorse that choice. Okay, so best actor. Again, very, very cliche choice. Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea. What a shock, right? Yeah. yeah. I I I actually am surprised to have, find myself putting Denzel Washington for fences. Because I've never really I mean, I've always liked Denzel Washington, but I don't Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't usually appear in films that I go see that often. I feel like he's somebody who makes a lot of Denzel Washington vehicles, and then you know, they, the Equalizer was like one of your favorite films from the last couple. I kind of like the Equalizer. It's dumb, but I liked it. I haven't seen it, mm. but I mean, I, yeah. I, but uh, I thought he was really good in Fences, and it wasn't a category that. Uh, I had a lot of choices for really, so I went with him. You be- you better go see uh, Patrick's favorite film, uh, Two Guns, with Denzel. You know, come on, <laughs> get on that. I should. Yeah. Uh, I have best for best actor uh, Jonathan Janay uh, in Cosmos. Yeah, oh. who uh, as a runner up, who I think is just <laughs> delivers this sort of terrifically manic and virile <laughs> performance that is, you know, it's te- textbook Zulowski. So. And I also I also really terrific. liked Colin Farrell in the in the yes. lobster. Yeah. That's yeah. probably yeah. the best thing he's ever yeah. done. So for best actress, whoo-hoo, a lot of good choices here. Um I I'm just gonna I'm gonna read off three. I mean I know I'm cheating, but I, I pretty much liked all of these performances equally for very different reasons. And the third choice is uh way out there. But um Isabelle Huppert in L. Haley Steinfeld in The Edge of Seventeen. My third choice is Ruth Wilson in I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives Inside the House. Uh, I just I was really taken with that movie. I was really taken with her performance in that, um, and she's not somebody I'm very familiar with. So uh, I'm looking forward to checking out more of her work. Yeah, her casting is uh, interesting as well as the actress who. Yeah plays the uh, younger woman who like the in the flashback the writer of the horror novels uh they both actually uh physically resemble like edith wharton and shirley jackson which the yeah. film is like 
heavily indebted to in terms of, you know, like a literary influence. Good call. Yeah, I also had Isabelle Huppert, a uh, combination of, you know, her work in L, Things to Come, and Valley of Love. And um, since you mentioned two others, I will mention two others. I would say Cynthia Nixon in A Quiet Passion and uh, Lee Young, Young uh, in Yourself and Yours, which hopefully oh. will come out this year. Mm, okay. Um, I have Ruth Naga in Loving. Very good choice. Hmm. So I think she's terrific. So for Best Supporting Actor, this this guy comes up every single year for me, practically. Uh, I've been trying to interview him. I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> but uh, he's my favorite actor working today. And he is the only thing I really liked about Nocturnal Animals. And that's Michael Shannon. So I'm giving him the Best Supporting Actor nod for uh, Nocturnal Animals. Yeah, I gave it to Tom Bennett for Love and Friendship. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, and I have given it to Andre Holland in Moonlight. Mm. Okay, <laughs> for Best Supporting <laughs> Actors. <laughs> Jeez, I wonder who I chose for Best Supporting Actress. Hmm. Could it be my favorite actress? I don't know. I think she's going to win. I, I, I'm... I don't want to go all, you know, I don't, I'm not a betting man, but uh, with all the accolades she's gotten, and I know she has very little screen time in this, and maybe she should have won for other films, <clears throat> Blue Valentine, but I'm going with Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea. I, I actually want to tell you, uh, Jim, that I met Michelle Williams <laughs> in 2016, actually. Oh, really? Hmm. Oh, that's that's great. I mean, it was a very brief encounter. I just happened to be working at a location where they were rehearsing for uh, the upcoming P.T. Barnum musical. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought you were going to so tell Zac me. Zac Efron, Hugh Jackman, all of those people. Oh, Zac Efron, your favorite from yep. Dirty Grandpa. Yep, favorite yeah. actor. Mm. Yep. The new Mark Wahlberg. Oh, okay. Well. All right. Yeah, that's I can go with that. I'm uh at, at first when you said it was a brief encounter, I was hoping you were telling me you were remaking Brief Encounter with <laughs> Michelle Williams. With Michelle Williams. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get my hopes up. Yeah. Yeah, I I went with uh for best supporting actress, I, certainly Michelle Williams is a good choice. I went with uh with someone I'm not too familiar with. I don't even know if I can totally say her name, but Lou Roy Lacolinette. Uh, from my golden days is who I chose. Oh, I need to and, see that uh, too. Damn. Yeah, and uh, I would do with an honorable mention for Julianne Moore and Maggie's plan. <laughs> yeah, with that accent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have Lily Gladstone for certain women, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, it's almost like all of the women in that film, in the way, in a way, are are simultaneously the lead and supporting you know actresses um but lily gladstone is incredible might have the most you know soulful eyes i've ever seen in you know cinema but i do also want to you know give a special mention controversial to to kate mckinnon in ghostbusters no that's not controversial at all i agree i love her okay yeah i think she is i think she's doing some like really interesting work in that film that 
is sort of calling back to, you know, like the likes of Jerry Lewis almost. She's not quite Jerry Lewis, but I, uh, I appreciate she was what made that film in a lot of ways, uh, watchable. Totally agree. So for best score, Bill, do you want to say it together? (laughs) We can say it together. Okay. On the count of three, one, two, three, the childhood childhood of of a leader. leader. Scott Walker. Holy shit. And he's not even going to be nominated, I bet. Not at all. Nobody's going to... Like, from the opening credits, I'm like, what is this? This is amazing. (laughs) It's kind of how I felt with um, the uh, Johnny Greenwood scores. It's funny that you say that, because I thought the exact same thing. Like, it's the way the score works, and there, there will be blood. Like, it's a very... Uh, overpowering at times score, but not in a bad way. Exactly. It's, but it's a, it's a very it's aggressive score. <laughs> is it like string instrumentation? Very much so. or? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I have Nicholas Bertel's score for Moonlight, which uh, while I was watching the film, I assumed was sort of uh, soundtrack, but having done a little bit of research, you know, most of the music in the film is original compositions. Mm. Mhm. Mm. So um oh man, best screenplay. Again, I I it was hard to nail down specifically. I mean, part of me wanted to just say, okay, I I'm going to go with Manchester by the Sea. But you know what? There were there were some other scripts that really impressed me this year, um including Silence, The Edge of 17. But I think my choice would be Things to Come. I uh I just thought it was a really well-written simple story with great dialogue and memorable characters and uh, it's certainly not going to be my last foray into Mia Hansen Love's work I this was tough for me uh, I went with The Lobster because it was a story I had never seen told before mm-hmm. and a very funny creative uh, I, I just I, I had to give it to that but uh, yeah A Quiet Passion uh, is one that was definitely runner up Yes, I also gave it to The Lobster as well. Okay. I still want to talk about that second half sometime with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, wow, again, uh, always a tough category, but uh, best cinematography for me goes to I, Olga Hepronovova. <laughs> I can never say anything right yeah. when it comes to yeah, that's films. A- that's a beautiful, yeah, looking film. Yeah. I, I went with the I went with the Love Witch. Uh, sure, I thought that thought that was really gorgeous. But yeah, I could. I mean, it's <laughs> one is great black and white photography. One is great color photography. <laughs> uh, I actually went with Terrence Davies' Sunset Song, mm-hmm. which maybe just you know is appealing to the iconoclast in me. Um, but you know, the exteriors being shot on sixty five, and then the interiors uh, being photographed digitally. Uh, it just, I mean, it's it's cliched, but that film feel, feels very, like, classically Fordian. Um, and gorgeous movie just in terms of the textures and um, colors, everything. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, okay, well, worst film of 2016. You know, Zach, I'm going to be nice. Because, uh... You know, originally, I mean, it's really a toss-up here. I could flip a coin and go with either Dirty Grandpa, but I'm not going to. I'm going to go with, gosh, and this is so predictable, so me, 
It's so it sort of wraps around right to the beginning of this damn podcast. I was gonna say, is it is it uh, the episode two director? You are stuff? correct, sir. Yeah, <laughs> thirty one. Rob Zombie, quit making movies. You are a complete hack. I hate you. Go away. Uh, I don't know if it's the worst film of the year, but the one I hated the most was The Conjuring 2. Oh, okay. I, I really did not like that one, and it felt like that had the resources to be a good film. And I liked The Conjuring, so I was surprised at how much I disliked it. I mean, there are smaller films that I thought were pretty bad but this one had every resource i'm assuming that a film could have and i just thought it was awful from beginning to end i thought you were going to say anti-birth for some reason anti-birth was it when i thought about yeah. but yeah no, the conjuring two i hate choice. worse very yeah. interesting yeah with this category i just want to preface by saying like i did not see things like collateral beauty <laughs> or Deadpool or like, you know, the latest Peter Berg film, you know, those are probably the worst films of the year. Um, So, but maybe it's a little controversial. The film that made me most upset while watching it um, in, in terms of what I felt the filmmaker was doing is, is actually Andrea Arnold's American honey. Uh, and so that's my worst film of 2016. Interesting. Very interesting indeed. Hmm. No, I've heard some hate for that movie actually. And, uh, uh hmm. it's just, I, I, it's not clear to me what her intentions are. It, she, she feels very much like a tourist in that world. Uh, I think the entire scenario of the film is like just this laborious series of social experiments, which continue to prove how little she's concerned with actually uh, portraying the truthful circumstances of this, the so- socioeconomic that these these children actually find themselves in it's just the whole scenario is that they're selling magazines um and but then there's some suggestion that it's something other than that um but she she is the film is constantly ignoring the actual dangers that i know people in that situation you know experience Hmm. like first of all no one should there's not any character that should actually be successful in selling those magazines you know that that is that in itself is a is a, a completely you know act of it's just perfunctory it's a it, i just and there's so many scenes like the scene where they they enter the woman who identifies as christian and her little girl and her friends are like dancing in the sprinklers or whatever <laughs> there's just like and then there's the whole added you know, religious, there's just like that sequence is a mess of ideas that I just feel like she is, she just misses everything. Um, but I, but I also should say, I don't like any of her films. So, because I feel like this is a recurring problem. Um, I, I mean, all I can say is I think the greatest observations that that film makes is that it, it offers a sense of vulnerability for a person who 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 finds himself in that situation but just you know i i think that movie is insanely manipulative even just down to 
Like it's supposed to be diegetic music, uh, but then you construct that Rihanna tune so that it appears twice within the film so that it, it makes some kind of thematic statement. Um, it just, uh, you know, I could not believe what I was watching, but you know, I understand why people have the response that they do. I, I just feel like Andrea Arnold is really solely concerned with like aesthetic preoccupations and the movie. And, and that's what the movie is about is like, look at these insects in a jar, look at, you know, how, dirty these kids faces are but it's like this beautiful close-up i mean it, it feels very much like larry clark's kids uh which is you know yeah. another film that i don't i don't like as well i don't um, uh, yeah uh, i'm not a fan of that <laughs> of larry clark's approach i don't know i uh, th- thought it was okay i mean it's one of those movies where again i i will i will admit that it has flaws and i don't you know when people put it in their top 10 i'm like eh. I guess, but it's it's it didn't really offend me in that regard, and I am a fan of Fish Tank, so uh, mm-hmm. I don't. I just I, I I think she shoots for an authenticity that more or less works. I mean, some of the song choices, yeah, I mean they kind of like veer into Zemeckis territory <laughs> when it comes to like spelling things out or just you know just even even something like Fade into You. I mean that's been done to death. <laughs> I I know, but I still love the song and. I, I understand where you're coming from, though, Zach, and it's, it sounds like just her choices ring false for you, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll respect that. I'll respect that. Um, you know, I always have a hard time, like, really pinpointing what the most annoying trend is, because I'm just not that guy who's, like, actively seeking out, what sucks? What's, what's really irking me? Um, but, you know, to some extent, I will say, like, I, I even brought this to Bill's attention when... Um, I think there's just certain think pieces, certain things out there that are being covered by film journalists, I guess you want to say, or any journalists. They just like pick up, pick on certain little minor inconsequential details about films and write an entire piece about them ad nauseum. I mean, the one example I, I can think of, I know there's plenty more, but just really getting up in arms about shouting out George Michael in La La Land. There was just this whole piece about, you know, Damien Chazelle hates pop music because he refers to George Michael in a derogatory fashion when all it is is just Emma Stone calling, you know, his character George Michael because he was in a pop band and looked like a, you know, uh, an 80s caricature. And I didn't think that was that offensive in any regard. I I didn't, like, and honestly... I don't think Damien Chazelle did that because he hates George Michael, and that seems to be what this think piece was getting at. And I, I just, I think I'm getting sick of these uh, highfalutin critics or just journalists kind of going off on a tangent that really doesn't justify, you know, however many words they put into a thought like that. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have a tricky time with this with this question also, but I, I went with, um, it felt like at least from my experience that there's a lot of critical vitriol over auteur works that were, I'm with them, Bill. We're, so. we're, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, trying to take chances that whether or not they were successful or not, I felt like the, the outrage over high rise or night of cups or the neon demon, uh, 
whether or not that sums work, it felt like I feel like it, you, maybe you should admire the risks being taken. Um, that it's, it just seemed like there was a lot more anger directed towards films like those than things that were just kind of anonymous and bland. Um, maybe that's just my impression of it, but it, it felt like, I, I don't know, I, I think that an interesting mess is still interesting, and that's something that I don't see like that position taken up in a lot of criticism hmm. that I saw okay. this year. I can understand that. Yeah, no, I can, I can agree yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I honestly don't really have anything for this category. Um, I'm... I don't, there are things that annoy me in, you know, cinephilia, but they kind of, they're always present. Yeah. They don't, it doesn't seem like they emerge in 2016. I mean, I kind of touched on earlier with the, the inability to, to find a, a language that brings both, you know, the identity politics and formal aesthetics into the same conversation that it seems like, uh, we have, we either have people that are talking about identity politics or we have people that are purely talking about, you know, uh, aesthetics and they're also in total opposition with one another. Um, and I just feel like we have to find a way to bring those two things together because I, I, I personally believe that they are connected inherently related yeah. to one another. So, Okay. Uh, memorable movie going theatrical experience um you know honestly this was also this could also be my runner up for biggest surprise was uh, a Ouija origin of evil because uh, i mean i saw this at a screening a public screening and man the audience just ate it up and they were screaming laughing having a great time clapping a couple of times and like i was not i mean i love the director obviously mike flanagan but i was not looking forward to that movie and uh, I, I found myself really eating that shit up. I loved it. And also, this is probably um, a, a, a much more um, applause-worthy choice for something like this, but the, the rep screening of The Red Shoes at the Music Box Theater. And oh, they wow. do many of those, but seeing that on the big screen, um, I, I was mesmerized and... You know, I, again, I was kind of walking to him. He was like, I don't really like ballet, but man, everybody seems to love these directors, so I better see it. And uh, I wound up loving it. So it's it's definitely one of the more memorable movie-going experiences of the year. Yeah, I, I had a hard time with this one. Um, I did see some great repertory uh, screenings, including um, I got to see Taxi Driver with uh, Scorsese, Paul Schrader, and the cast all there for a Q&A. That was exciting, but it didn't really feel like the number one thing for me. I, I guess seeing Things to Come and L back to back, the New York Film Festival, uh, with Isabelle Luper, Mia Hansen Love, and Paul Verhoeven all there for Q and A's. Um, that was probably the highlight, I guess. Um and also that was the night where I went with two friends that were also big Isabelle Luper fans and we all really loved both films. And then uh we went for drink uh for drinks during the break and uh Willem Dafoe was two people behind us in line. And so my biggest regret of two thousand sixteen was not offering to let him cut in line ahead of us. I still wish I had done that, but um yeah, uh, two films that I was excited about that lived up to their uh lived up to my high expectations for them and uh with you know great q and a's and uh yeah that was my happiest uh movie going moment i guess man if i saw willem dafoe ha, i just lift my arms up in the air 
and just uh, do the Jesus Christ pose right in front of him. <laughs> uh, I saw a rep screening of a film titled Sambazanga uh, that was at a rooftop screening this past summer, projected on 16 millimeter. Uh, which is a film that was produced by Angolan militants during the Angolan War for Independence back in the uh, early 1970s. Damn. Um, uh, it's directed by a woman, Sarah Malador, um, you know, and it very much resembles what one would expect from militant political cinema of the 70s. But seeing it on a rooftop on a hot summer night as the sun was setting seemed like oh. an, an appropriate locale for a film that kind of functions as a piece of resistance. Um, oh, yeah. I will also say that there were aspects of the MoMA silence screening that were very fascinating <laughs> that have nothing to do with the film itself, but <laughs> the audience and particularly an older man, which this is very common in New York who was so enraged with a woman who was eating uh M&Ms that he got up and walked about six rows back and screamed at her, stop it. <laughs> and then went back and sat down. And then 10 minutes later, she started eating her M&Ms again. And he turned around and said, I'm serious. And then she uh, ceased eating the M&Ms for the, rem the remainder of that film. But that was a sort of, I hadn't had a lot of sleep and there were a lot of weird things happening during that screen. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that sounds eerie. I wouldn't be... Yeah, that sounds like something out of Messiah of Evil. But, I mean, <laughs> I, I just... Uh, yeah, I, ooh, I do have that sensitivity. Like, I feel like my hearing sensitivity has skyrocketed as I've gotten older. I don't know what it is. Like, if I hear people rustling their popcorn bags, I cannot tune it out. It's just... It's, it sounds louder in my head than it probably does to most people. So I, that's something I kept bringing up to a lot, of, a lot of friends is like, do you get this thing where it's like you just hear people making noise in a movie theater and you just want to – yeah, you do want to yell at them, but you're not. And I just – I don't know. I found myself really sensitive to that. I would never do that. I would never right. – but it's still, it's just like, yeah, it, it sounds louder than ever to me. Mm -hmm. um yeah i i also yeah i also <laughs> i just thought of this i also had a guy in the edge of 17 <laughs> um i i think it was uh towards the end of this of the movie where um oh god i i don't know if it was he was yelling this at Haley steinfeld or the uh, her best friend but uh at one point um an older gentleman in the front row, I believe was with his he was with his wife, just yelled out, "Why don't you give him a blowjob instead?" Oh, that okay, yeah, that was in the, when he was in the when she was in the car. Remember, Bill? She mm -hmm. was in the car with the with that guy that she was really into, and he was just, of course, wanting to have sex. And yeah, an older gentleman just yelled that at the top of his lungs, and was so uncomfortable and weird. I didn't know how to respond. <laughs> because it was it was an older guy, and it seemed like he was with his wife, and he just he was quiet for most of the movie. And you go over and give him what he apparently wants. see if he if he responds the same way. I'd like to believe that he yelled this out during screenings of all the films we've spoken about so far <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, that was it. Unless you do have an entry 
for the infamous I Think Jim is Crazy award. That's the last one. But there's also a Best Cinematic Discovery. Oh, wait a minute. You're right. Sorry, I forgot about that one. Uh, The best movie you saw for the first time that wasn't a 2016 release. Easy for me. Because uh, I've, I've discovered that Nicholas Ray is now one of my top ten favorite directors as a result of the Nicholas Ray episode. I'm going with uh, They Live by Night as my choice. And uh, let's hope that Criterion is putting that puppy out. Because, yeah, I want that shit. Pretty sure that they are. <laughs> I hope so. Um, this was tough for me. I had a whole long list of films. Um, but I... I'm going to say uh, Catalan Varga, the uh, first film from Peter Strickland, the Romanian revenge film. Oh, uh, I really? That was I need really, to see that. Huh. I thought that was really incredible. And uh, I wish more, I, maybe at some point more people will see it because of the, uh, the, the popularity of Barbarian Sound Studio and the Duke, Duke of Burgundy. But uh, yeah, that's, that's one I'll, I'll put for picking one. But busting the uh, 1974 Elliot Gould Rubber Blake Cop Buddy film uh, was my runner up. Yeah, it, I saw a lot of great stuff this year. I caught up with a lot of like uh, Jerry Lewis's back catalog. Who I think Jerry Lewis is God, but you know that's. Uh, Are you French? Uh, no. no, but they 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 know what they're okay, talking okay. about. Okay, that's a, that's definitely a blind spot. If I were to pick like a top five blind spots for me, I need to go back yeah. and check out his work too. Um, but I suppose um, given the the political climate there was a film i saw titled uh, gabriel over the white house Ooh. which i saw last year around election day which is from 1933 it stars walter houston as a uh, newly elected president during the great depression who is uh, a bachelor and uh, sort of a fool and a member of an unnamed party who sees you know things like mass unemployment and uh, hunger as concerns of local government and doesn't believe in government interference in those kinds of issues. Uh, he's then his character is then in a car accident where he's struck on the head and is sent into a coma, which uh, many doctors believe he's he's going to die. Um, uh, needless to say, when John uh, Walter Houston awakes, he has a whole new, a fresh political agenda uh, that has been sort of enforced upon him by the heavens and he becomes this uncompromising uh left-wing dictator wow he fires an entire cabinet of conservative politicians um because congress is threatening to impeach he announces the country is under martial law uh, <laughs> and begins to enact this agenda which includes like policy you know radical policies you know like public works projects for unemployed people uh agricultural subsidies for small farmers, government-issued liquor stores to put an end to uh, prohibition, Um, you know, has the basic philosophy that no human being should go hungry and all should have the right to work. Uh, But he also creates a federal bureau of police to crack down on racketeering and mobsters, and uh, which is portrayed in a very authoritarian light. And then he also demands that foreign governments who are in debt to the United States be paid off by agreeing to uh, agreeing to universal military disarmament. Uh, it is a insanely confused <laughs> political piece of filmmaking wow. that uh, apparently 
Franklin Roosevelt, who had just been elected, had some input on the screenplay. Um, but it become it's this very strange tale of sort of political cosmic justice uh, that, in some ways, feels very relevant right now. Um, film was directed by Gregory Lacava, who is kind of sometimes considered by some as like the last great in that group of last great Hollywood directors who should kind of be given the auteur label in some ways, even though he didn't, you know, write the films that he directed. I mean, some of, you know, he directed my man, Godfrey stage door. Um, but it's said that he was sort of a very left wing figure. Um, but it's just this really kind of fascinating piece of like historical ephemera, um, and kind of maybe revealing in, 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 you know, what, what kind of individual a person has to be in order to assume the role, the role of a world lately, you know, world leader. Um, but definitely all over the place politically, but very fascinating. Sounds like it. I want to get on that one. Hmm. Very good. So before we get to our 11 through 25, you guys got a Jim is crazy award. Uh, I, I don't really, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I, you know, I was struggling and I know that in December you had, uh, really, uh, taken La Vie Nouvelle to town, oh, yeah. the, uh, which is a film I really liked a lot, but, uh, I can see how that wouldn't appeal to everybody. And that was technically December of last year. So that was the closest thing I could come up with, but we don't have a crash situation this year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a difficult category because I don't feel like you're, you're not a dogmatic person you know like which is a compliment <laughs> you know uh honestly since it's come up like just one thing that i thought was amusing and i hadn't and actually your review of the film inspired me to watch it was like the extreme negative reaction to something like dirty grandpa oh, okay uh which I, like don't get me wrong is is awful uh i'm not trying to say that uh but I do think that movie is interesting in like how completely transparent it is. And I do think like as a, I I feel like a lot of people, what they're responding to is that they're watching the deconstruction of De Niro's iconic image, which I think is the (laughs) entire, what the entire film is kind of trying, what its agenda is to one degree. Really? Wow. That's interesting though. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm like fascinated with this idea that De Niro like has lost his mind because he's been in like in some less than stellar material in the last decade. Um, but I I feel like this film kind of in its own you know awful and at other times like brilliant ways exploit exploits those anxieties. Um, I mean I just like the opening where you, you see him; he's the introspective res- reserve character that you see. The next scene, they destroy that with him watching pornography and masturbating, masturbating <laughs> while swearing like a sailor. Like it's just it, the movie feels less like a like a narrative film and just more like this filthy vaudeville. Act. Yeah, that's kind of what Adam Sandler's uh, like, movies have essentially yes, abs- turned absolutely. into. And yeah. I, I I don't know it it, it grates on. It's like too much. I, it grates on me after a while. I mean, there. <sighs> I, I guess for me, the difference is, is I actually think De Niro and Zac Efron, they have actually better comedic timing 
than someone like Sandler does. And they're very, I think in this film, they actually are giving like, I think really strong, like physical body comedy okay, performances. Okay. I can, I can, um, I can respect that. I, I mean, I actually think Zac Efron is very funny in a lot of films. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not too crazy about those neighbors movies, particularly the second one, but uh, he's, he's really good. I think he's really got comedic chops in the same way I felt about um, Channing Tatum in the 21 Jump Street movies. I just, I think both of them are very, very talented comedic actors. I just, uh, ugh. I don't know. It, it, mm. I think it's also just, I, I don't want De Niro to be slumming it anymore, please. I mean, he had a little comeback with David O. Russell there. But it's just, I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, what what's happened? Like, I mean, to choose something like this, I don't know. I, I I feel like he's just he's taking a piss at this point. He just doesn't care. I don't. I don't. I, I yeah. I don't know if it's that or if he he uh, like he get he's getting off on the idea that I'm like I'm destroying your perception of me. That's possible. Uh, which I th- honestly think a movie like The Intern also kind of does uh, in a very different <laughs> way. Um, That's an interesting to look at that. I, I, if you did an actors club on De Niro. I think that would be a really yeah. interesting episode, not just because of his legendary work, but what he's essentially become. Yeah. Before we continue with our lists, here are some listener slash previous guest contributions. Ooh, uh-huh, yeah, I like that. Let's listen to this. Hi, this is Regina, a.k.a. Tesseract. I write Consistent Panda Bear Shape, a blog about fat characters in cinema, and I'm a previous contributor to Directors Club Podcast. I'm happy to share with you my top 10 films of 2016. Something that's really important to me in the movies that I choose to see is seeing diverse representation overall of different aspects of the human experience, not just, you know, jacked white dudes. And I'm really happy that my top 10 list reflects that this year. My number 10 film is Under the Shadow, which is an Irani horror film. It shares a lot of similarities plot-wise to The Babadook, but it has its own style, its own way of building tension. It goes beyond that glib descriptor. Definitely check it out if you get a chance. My number nine is Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. My number eight is Green Room. I wrote on my Letterboxd review when I saw it in April. Uh, Of all the things I like about this movie, the feeling of it being politically relevant is the one that is foremost in my mind and the one that I desperately hope I'm exaggerating. (laughs) Anyway, uh, my number seven is Embrace of the Serpent. My number six is The Love Witch. And number five is The Witch. I have to say, as someone who's been a practicing neo-pagan for all of my adult life, it's really exciting for me to have both of these films in my top ten in the same year to see these like really interesting, kind of in-depth reflections of characters who practice witchcraft and uh, the complicated reasons for it. And tonally, thematically, they're pretty different films, and they're both pretty amazing. So I feel really super lucky to 
be uh, saying that this year. My number four is The Lobster. My number three is Hunt for the Wilder People. I haven't written about it on my blog yet, but I definitely intend to. I think Ricky Baker is one of the best fat characters I've seen thus far in a movie, which is exciting to say. Also, it's just it's just really well done. Story-wise, you can kind of tell where things are going and what's going to happen, but it's just such a beautiful, charming, warm film. I don't even care that it's a bit predictable. My number two is Mustang, and my number one is Moonlight, which I both appreciated for the same reason. They're just both focused on characters who have to struggle to survive because of who they are and have to struggle to be true to themselves and to find their own ways of being free and being authentic to themselves. And they both have such beautiful images and they're a bit on the abstract side, but there's just something about them where you just really fall in love with the characters that you meet and you really just want the best for them. And your heart breaks when you see that they're living in these situations that make it so difficult to to be themselves and be who they are. Moonlight especially. Moonlight also um, does one of the things that I love in movies where they use a pop song, an old pop song that you've heard a million times before but in the context of the film it just becomes so even like deeper and richer and you just it, it just grabs you by the throat in the way that it had never done in all the million times you've heard it before. So hell Stranger by Barbara Lewis. Hell yeah. So that's it. That's my top 10. Um, Thanks for letting me share it. I hope you have a safe and happy 2017. If you want to check me out online, my blog is at pandabearshape.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tesseract, T-E-S-S-A underscore R-I-C-K-E-D. I'm on Letterboxd at uh, Pandabearshape. Patrick Rapole, Jim Laskowski, and all of the great listeners and guests that the Directors Club podcast has had over the past year. Happy New Year to all of you. I'm Andrew James from the Row 3 Cinecast, and here's my top 10 films of 2016. And number 10, Jean-Marc Vallée's Demolition, which actually was at number one way earlier in the year and just has slowly slid down as I've seen other things. Number nine is Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, playing grab-ass with some baseball players for a couple of days before college. Always a good time. Uh, number eight, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Number seven, the tragically or seemingly underseen Triple Nine. I've got two Casey Affleck films in this list. Number six, Alan Rickman's farewell film, Eye in the Sky. May he rest in peace. Number five, The Neon Demon. Number four, Natalie Portman's sure to win an Oscar for Jackie, which I really, really loved. Number three, the other Casey Affleck film, Manchester by the Sea. Number two, the very uplifting and fun and much better than that other musical that everybody is going gaga about. Sing Street. And my favorite film of the year is Hell or High Water. And starring Jeff Bridges and Ben Foster and Chris Pine. Um, very nice sort of unglossy version of No Country for Old Men in a way. It's great. 
Uh, and that's going to do it. So thanks, guys, for putting on your show throughout the year. I always enjoy having a listen. And uh, we, I hope you have a very pleasant 2017. And I guess we'll see you in a couple weeks for the Danny Boyle episode. Cheers and Happy New Year, everybody. Bye-bye. You people. If there isn't a movie about it, it's not worth knowing, is it? Okay, guys. We got um, 25 through 11, and then we're going to take a quick break. So, um, again, I mean, I know it's it's hard even just for these choices on your list to go through them rather quickly, but uh, let's do our very best to do so. I mean, you can say like a sentence or two about each of them if you like, but just, uh, yeah, don't go on a five-minute rant on why you chose that movie. Let's just, uh, let's keep it to a minimum, but obviously feel free to, um, especially if it's an interesting choice, go ahead and say why. Justify yourself. Um, justify, justify your love, Madonna style. So here we go. I'll go first and, uh, I'll do my best here. Number 25 is a very funny movie that, uh, I also found to be very original. Um, it didn't make my favorite screenplays of the year list simply because I'm not, I'm not too keen on the way things wrap up, but it has heart on its sleeve sincerity about everything from farting to sex two of my favorite things uh and that's swiss army man um i know you weren't crazy about it bill but and i understand why people wouldn't be crazy about it it's just like it's kind of like michelle gondry on overdrive but i i really found myself warming up to this movie and i i really genuinely thought that uh uh daniel radcliffe gave a great comedic performance uh number 24 is manchester by the sea um, I mean, I, I think it's it's shocking to me that it's this low because I love Kenneth Lonergan's work, but I also agree with critic Mike D'Angelo that I think each of each film he's done is a slight step down from the next, and I know I'm in the minority there because I think You Can Count on Me is his masterpiece. Uh, but I I will say that like the the main issue I have here is just the choice to utilize that classical piece. Um, during the flashback. It really took me out of it. I was trying to think in my mind while that piece was playing, what movies have I heard this piece in before? And that's not something that you should be thinking about in that scene, uh, during that entire sequence, because it's very, very shocking and traumatic. I just didn't get as emotionally um, involved or caught up in it as everybody else seems to be. But then again, I mean, like you mentioned, Bill, that scene with Michelle Williams and Casey Affleck is one of the best of the year. It's really powerful, um, and I do love the ending. I like how it l- ends on a kind of an ellipsis note rather than just like being definitive. It's not necessarily ambiguous, but it ends it ends on the right note, I think. Uh, number twenty three is the other side, uh, a documentary that I I don't think any film made me angrier this year, but uh, I marveled at kind of just like the the level of fearlessness on part of this director to really capture this demographic of extremists and addicts and it's something you will never forget if you're adventurous enough to check this out on um i think it's on fandor the other side okay yeah so um 22 is the most overrated film of 2016 according to bill ackerman and that's loving one of uh, two jeff nichols films on my list surprise uh and i i understand 
I can see where you're coming from in your criticism with that, Bill, but I found that to be a plus rather than a negative. I mean, it's reserved and very focused on these people as human beings, and they don't necessarily externalize all their rage when you feel like it should happen. Um, but I mean, I just found I just they were they were frightened to the point of silence, and I found that to be just as compelling as somebody getting very loud and aggressive and intense. Um, and one of my favorite moments involves a photograph being taken, which is very simple, very sublime, a wonderful love story that um, I don't think is going to get the kind of acclaim that I initially thought it would be, but that's fine. I'll, I still love it. Um, and speaking of love, number 21 is Love and Friendship. Uh, I'm not a Whit Stillman guy, but I love a good period piece when it's done right. Uh, Kate Beckinsale is just incredible in this. And I don't know. It, it's, this, is pro- this isn't probably too accurate, but I, just, I thought of it as if Woody Allen directed Downton Abbey. Uh, I, I just thought it was really witty and smart writing. Um, so number 20 is one of the more d- divisive films of the year. You know, everybody got on board with The Neon Demon, but I really, really, really loved Midnight Special. Um, all of it. Um, I'm, okay, not maybe, I, let's say that I loved about 90% of the movie. Uh, and I certainly got behind just the relationship between the father and son of this, of course. Surprise, surprise. But um, I will say that the, the Tomorrowland-esque ending is definitely the, the turning point where I kind of rolled my eyes but also still felt uh, invested in the story enough to, to give it a huge pass. And I like it. Fine. <laughs> Number 19 is Moonlight, uh, a movie that pe- people have way higher on their lists. And I certainly did like it, but I guess the emotional impact didn't hit me as hard in the third act. Uh, and it's another movie, kind of like Loving, where I I was very surprised by how reserved it was. But again, I thought that worked in its favor. Uh, number 18 is another one I can't wait to watch again, um, even if it's a, a very long endurance test for some people. But that's silence. I, I was really into this film. I thought Andrew Garfield was great. The dialogue and narration was reminiscent of Last Temptation of Christ, of course. But... Um, it was mixed with the clashing ideologies of, of you know, of, of that, that we get to see in Kundun. So it's kind of like this interesting amalgam of those two films done in a very confrontational way that's very bleak. And I think it still resonates today with just like how religious, religious zealots and extremists get to uh, feel the need to go on a power trip. So um, number 17 is a movie I saw last night. Um, it could go higher, but I, I really was taken aback by my love for A Monster Calls. It's it's a movie I think a lot of critics are dismissing, similarly to Pete's Dragon. But I think I, I just love an effective movie that's aimed at young adults that doesn't sway away from being very dark um, and, confrontational, and confrontational about death. Because this movie is very, very confrontational about grief and loss. Um, and it allows a child to experience catharsis. But I will admit, it's very didactic and direct. A lot of the uh, emotional um, content is spelled out to the audience, so maybe that bugs people, but it didn't to me at all because the feelings here are very familiar. Uh, Number 16 is L. Um, I I think the next three movies on the list are kind of ones I wrestle with, but in a very good way because I'm not entirely sure of Verhoeven's intent, but that's exciting to me because uh, I like to think about it and process what he was trying to intend here. And 
Um, it's something that I think it's one of those movies too. You can talk about it with a group of people, and, and they might have different experiences with it. But it's anchored by the performance of the year, of course. Number fifteen is Certain Women, uh, Reichardt's latest film. Again, she kind of hasn't reached the pinnacle of Wendy and Lucy or Meek's cutoff for me, but that's okay. Uh, this one is more successful than her last film and her endings always leave me wanting more in the best way possible and again that third story is just um unbelievable to me i love it uh number 14 i am the pretty thing that lives inside the house i I struggled between this and putting don't breathe on my list because one really left me biting my nails and the other one left me kind of dazed and confused and haunted and gave me nightmares um, I went with this. Uh, this is the one that left me very confused, but I loved it nonetheless. I think the atmosphere, the dread, the um, the aesthetics of um, Anthony Perkins' son. I can't remember his name. Do you guys know his, the director's name? I can't remember. Oz Perkins? Oh, okay. Oz, okay. Very, very, very incredible. A singular piece of work. Uh, again, that female performance here accompanied by just a sense of dread and atmosphere that really, really got under my skin. I, I, I love this movie, and I can understand people absolutely despising it, too. Um, number 13 is Sing Street. I don't need to go into great detail. If you've seen this movie, you know why I like it. The end. <laughs> um, it's probably the most gym movie of 2016. So, number 12 is O.J. Made in America, one of several extraordinary documentaries of this year. A lot of people put it lower, or I mean, put, put it very high on their list. Um, but I, it's it's certainly I think the main reason why it is lower is just because I don't plan on rewatching it as much. Uh, but that's not to dismiss it as an important piece of art that's really getting to the heart of what's going on in today's country. It's still resonant, and uh, films like this and uh, something like the act of killing come around once in a blue moon to really say what's going on sociologically. Um, and it, it deserves all the accolades that it's getting. Number 11 is The Edge of 17, the biggest surprise of the year, because uh, I saw the trailer, had zero interest, and, uh, man, those scenes between Haley Steinfeld and Woody Harrelson are comedy gold. Uh, consistently charming film. Again, I think the ending is a little too pat and con- and sort of conventional for my taste, but again, it's my perks of being a wallflower choice for 2016, and Haley Steinfeld is incredible. The end. That's my choices. Let's move it on over to... Let's go with Zach. Let's change it up a little here. Zach, what are your choices okay. for 25 through 11? Um, done kind of rapid fire. So number 25, I have Loving, directed by Jeff Nichols. Number 24, I have a short experimental film titled Burning Mountains Which Spew Flame hmm. uh, that sort of explores this underground network of vo- volcanic tunnels which is photographed in the Canary Islands I believe on the same island that the film Evolution was oh, also really? photographed hmm. um, it's very much you know a mood piece uh, concerned kind of like with these textural tensions between filmic and digital images but I think it also uses those different formats to sort of establish almost a supernatural uh, reality. Uh, there's this really terrific sequence when a character falls into one of the tunnels where the film becomes a series of freeze frame phrase, freeze frames, which are edited kind of corresponding to the soundscape, but they evoke the fall like visually through like irregularities within the film grain structures. 
um, because it's also photographed on uh, expired uh, film stock. Um, but if you like, you know, like ethnographic cinema, I think it's entertaining. Uh, number 23 is Never Eat Alone, which is a found footage fictional feature directed by a Canadian woman, Sophia Bodanowitz, uh, which is kind of creates this alternative family history. Um, her grandmother plays herself, who in the 50s appeared as a performer on a Canadian television show, and she encourages her granddaughter to try and find a copy of the broadcast, uh, sort of with the hopes of seeing uh, a fellow performer who she had dated before marrying, who would become her husband and the filmmaker's grandfather. Um, so it's very much a film constructed out of like the what-if principle. Um, her grandmother is curious about what his life uh, became and sort of has conversations with uh, her another granddaughter who appears on screen about like the past events and shares photographs of a vacation in the Bahamas that her and her husband made many years ago. Uh, but the film majority of the film intercuts between the grandmother, her granddaughter, and the man from the television broadcast during these acts of isolation, uh, mainly eating alone. Um, so it's, it's actually like very jarringly straightforward. Uh, all the co- images are composed in available light. They, they're not like, it might be fictionalized, but it's never attempting to over manipulate the behavior of any of the characters. Uh, so it's like very passively direct, just beautifully conveys like sort of the breadth of life, uh, you know, past careers, collected objects, family artifacts, uh, and then kind of like how often we actually spend our lives completely alone. Um, number 22 is Things to Come. Number 21 is Sunset Song. Uh, number 20 is Paul Verhoeven's L. Uh, number 19 is C. Laos, I believe is how you pronounce uh, the film, which is uh, another short avant-garde film, which is kind of unlike anything I've ever seen before, which uses um, song as a storytelling transmission. Um, the narrative is of a woman who journeys to an island, the island of Maloya, um, in search of her father, who she never knew. Um, she discovers that he's died, but insists to continue searching for him. Uh, so the piece is sort of constructed out of musical traditions of, uh, Reunion Island, which is where Maloya is, which, where the, the, the continued search accompanied by these musical interludes, kind of evokes the sense of this woman's father appearing to her through song. So the singer becomes a medium and the music is sort of the seance. Um, it kind of shares certain aesthetic sensibilities with like the films of Pedro Costa in that like the mise-en-scene kind of fluctuates between this very minimalist uh, environment and it requires a lot of like pantomime uh, there's a driving sequence where two actors are simply like sitting on the floor acting as though they're driving and riding in a vehicle that's not actually there. Um, so very elusive film. So ever-changing, unspecific in, in its iconography, but very much one of a kind. Uh, number 18, Indefinite Pitch, uh, directed by James and Kleinitz Wilkins. Another short avant-garde film that proceeds with a series of still images of Berlin, New Hampshire, while the film's director provides sort of this stream of consciousness monologue that begins as a movie pitch. 
um, and then expands to discuss like the social and economic, uh, conditions of Berlin, New Hampshire now, while also he's discussing his struggle to create work. Um, I think it's really well written and very funny. Um, and it kind of revives like a very dismissed cinematic device, which, you know, voiceover narration and kind of breathes new life into its application. Uh, number 17 is a, another ethnographic film called El Dorado 21, which, uh, was actually, also, my selection, we didn't get to it, to the best sound design of of the year. Um, that's all right. Um, it's a film set in La Rinconada, which is a town in the Peruvian Andes near a gold mine and is, uh, is like the settle, it's the highest settlement, uh, in terms of elevation in the world. Um, it's and the movie is very much sort of like a exploiting this tension between image and sound kind of throwing emis, images that you assume are truth and then the audio is sort of maybe negating that a little bit uh but if people have heard of this film they know they've heard of the infamous shot which is this single static uh 57 minute uh composition that begins at dusk and then falls into darkness as we watch uh, miners entering and exiting this gold mine. Uh, but the sound design during that sequence is especially brilliant because uh, Salome Lamas, the film's director, creates this soundscape that is a compositive, a compositive like interview and local folk song and then like local radio broadcast that are sort of remixed together to really provide a context for the place in the image that you're you're staring at for such a great deal of time um and then that kind of also because you're getting a translation that also kind of then exploits the tension between like looking at an image while attempting to read subtitles uh i think really successfully um but that's a uh, terrific film uh number 16 is valley of love number 15 is uh maybe a little bit of a cheat uh is the Studio Ghibli film Only Yesterday that was released for the first time in the United States, but originally released in 1990. Uh, number 14 is Camera Person. Number 13 is The Illinois Parables. Uh, number number 12 is a documentary film uh, titled Austerlitz. Uh, it's an observational documentary kind of situated between uh, two Nazi concentration camps that are, you know, regularly visited by sort of this fury of what we come to see as very disinterested tourists. Um, and it's kind of like a meditation on how we interact with historical spaces. And in this case, sort of like spaces of institutionalized atrocity. Um, and while I don't think the movie is implying any kind of moral judgment upon it, the people in it, like I was certainly asserting moral judgment as I watched people walk around with t-shirts that like said things like, you know, cool story, bro, or like, you know, fuck off. Uh, like, and then like ceaselessly indulge in taking photographs to the extent that they actually pose as if they are prisoners themselves. Um, so it's like a very interesting film watching like this juxtaposition of watching free bodies interact within a space that once restricted freedom. Um, and, and kind of observing how those bodies end up creating similar conditions unbeknownst to themselves. Like 
this they 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 end up in these like dense hordes they're all gathering around an exhibit with like little patience for one another they're standing in these long lines they're like kind of sitting on these benches like on almost on top of one another um and then it, it's also just kind of like one of those people watching films kind of where it becomes almost like a comedy of errors you know people trying to keep their hats on in the wind or fend off the assault of like a bee or something um and you also realize that the fact that we wear clothes makes us look like clowns <laughs> like clothes are ridiculous you know like it's insane um but it's also like interesting uh there's these guided tours and the guided tours are provided from by individuals who come from the same country of origin as the touring group so you see like a spanish speaking tour a German-speaking tour, and then an English-speaking tour, uh, both British and American. Uh, but it's interesting to, like, observe how different each tour guide conveys the history. Like, the American tour guides are continually and very arrogantly, like, emphasizing the inability of rebellion, hmm. as if the audience cannot understand why there wasn't an uprising, you know? And it kind of, that begins to, like, hint at real real questions of cultural identity you know we as americans live in a society which tells us something like the holocaust could never happen here um and these ideas about you know government that if we want to change the system we organize we rebel and then it's changed you know like that's you know that's that's the propaganda that is distributed it's not the truth but it's what people believe um so it's a fascinating film. I think it actually is screening in here at in New York and in at MoMA in I think late February. Uh, I don't know what its distribution plans are, but probably sometime in 2017. And then my number 11 is a uh video art piece called Pink Horses Blue Oceans uh directed by Jake Barningham. It's like a short 6-minute film. Uh Jake Barningham is a filmmaker who works strictly with digital video and kind of uses it to like exploit these extremely abstract textural images uh that kind of are like questioning our perception of vision in some ways uh this film is like densely pixelated saturated short silent piece which kind of evokes the histories of like edward muybridge with his like motion studies and then like also early cave paintings Hmm. um I i think like Jake Barningham, part of why I put him on this list is because I want people to know who this, who he is. Um, like, I think he might be the most significant filmmaker, like, working with digital materials in the digital age, specifically because he uses video unlike anybody else. It's very similar to, like, the way that Stan Brakhage used film. Uh, but I don't want to, like, make that comparison for fear of, like, wrongly drafting like an expectation um but he you know very much creates these dense cinematic worlds through like the teasing of the format and he's like very much his own artist um so i his his films are difficult to see he has a vimeo page which we could maybe link in the show notes um but i i just think he's really underseen underappreciated i think his films are deeply emotional experiences that you kind of get lost within that are purely visually driven. So that pink 
Pink Horses, Blue Oceans, number 11. Wow! There are some titles in there that I gotta jot down and check out myself. Good job, Zach. Thanks. Oh, thank you. All right. Uh-huh. It's a marathon. No kidding, right? Well, that's why we're gonna take a break after we hill... Hill? After we hear <laughs> Bill's list. All right, well, I'll try to go quickly. Uh, 25, I have Personal Shopper, uh, writer-director Olivier Asias, film with uh, Kristen Stewart. Um, don't know. Like, I went into this one completely cold, so I I kind of don't really want to say very much about it, other than that it's a uh, thriller that's going to have a very split reception when it comes out, because the um, I guess the genre elements maybe are going to be too much for an art house audience and it's going to be maybe too art house for a thriller audience maybe but i i found it completely surprising and i uh, can't wait to see it again i think it opens march 10th um 24 i have de palma no baumbach and jake paltrow's documentary um saw a lot of arts related documentaries over the last year um spike lee's michael jackson off the wall documentary the jim Jarmer stooges documentary um even a um uh, an epic account of the early club years of Twisted Sister. They're all pretty interesting. But um, De Palma's my favorite. Um, I don't know if it qualifies as art the way some other documentaries later on my list do, but uh, I've seen it three times now. I think it's very entertaining. Uh, De Palma's very funny, and he's at that point where he doesn't really care whose feelings he hurts. So he's uh, very clear about what he likes and dislikes and who he likes and dislikes. Um, uh, and I like that all the films he's directed are tackled to some extent. Um, so it's, and he gets into the uh, the techniques of uh, of what makes his films uh, interesting just on a technical level. So uh, that's my number for twenty four. Twenty three is the Edge of Seventeen, uh, the Kelly Freeman Craig film. Um, I didn't think it was as interesting as last year's Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, the ending feels a little bit more pat than maybe I'm crazy about, but I would say this is at least ninety percent total fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think it's telling that something that would be treated like a, uh, like an early Cameron Crowe or John Hughes film, as far as like a, uh, just like a charming teen comedy is like treated like an art house specialty release nowadays. Good call, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a, a good little comedy that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's one of the only comedies I found really funny this year. <laughs> um, 22, I have do not resist from Craig Atkinson. Oh um, Yeah. I think uh, this being a year of Black Lives Matter, there's a few documentaries that really kind of resonated with the times, including uh, some films that are not on my list, like uh, Avra DuVernay's 13th. But um, this one about the militarization of the U.S. police force is, for me, uh, maybe the most powerful. Um, the Love Witch is number 21 for me, and a Biller, sexy feminist comedy in, uh, told in the style of a Technicolor horror movie. It's... Uh, it's a lot of fun and one I'm excited to see again. I might be underrating it, but I've only seen it the one time. Uh, 20, I have uh, Kelly Blues. Uh, Gan B, I think is how he says it. I'm not sure. It's a dreamy drama about ex-con turned small-town doctor who, uh, when he hears about his brother bending his nephew, goes off in search of him. But the plot isn't really the key thing about it. It's like this, um, just this lyrical, low-key kind of drama with some really... Uh, virtuoso camera work that kind of makes it very exciting just on a technical level, but it's, it's a very interesting one that I want to see again. Um, uh, 19, I have OJ made in America directed by Ezra Edelman. Um, 
I can understand why people rate this even higher than I do. Yeah. Uh, it's probably the most widely it's probably the most widely seen film on my list. I don't really care about O.G. Simpson or football, and there's quite a lot of both in this. So it's probably something that is a miracle that's even on my list at all. But I think that the um, I think giving like the the cultural context surrounding O.J.'s life, uh, I found really interesting. Just the uh, how his story played against the backdrop of Black America. I think that um, I don't know if it needs to be as long as it is, but I, I don't know that. I think the stuff that I like best might be the first to go in a proper documentary. So it, you know, it's it's fascinating, and it, I don't know. Like you said, it's not one you might not return to. I don't know how it plays on rewatch, um, but. I think that it's, and in a way, it almost feels like more like prestige television to me than a film. But I, I know that that's kind of a um, maybe almost a, uh, an arbitrary distinction. I mean, it did play theatrically, but uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it lives up to its reputation for the most part. I would say, uh, eighteen uh, is uh, evolution. Uh, Lucille Hadzahalilovic. <laughs> I don't know how to say. Is it Hadzahalilovic? Uh, um, Art house body horror about a young boy in an island populated by other little boys and adult women. Um, I thought it was beautiful looking and uh, creepy and unpredictable. And um, I know that you guys are not as hot on that one as I am, but uh, I, I I have a real fascination for art house uh, horror hybrids, and this was one of my favorites. Um, Seventeen, I had my golden days. Uh, Arnaud Desplechon. Uh It's a companion film to. Uh, my sex life or how I got into an argument. Um, it's kind of in that uh, tradition of sexual, volatile French relationship dramas, like the kind of thing you see in Betty Blue or even Gaspar Noé's Love. Um, but it's unusually uh, constructed. The uh, The first act is like this series of different stories, like of madness and of espionage in the Soviet Union. It's it's an unusual... Uh, I think, I, yeah, I... yeah i just found i mean it's 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 a story that's been told before but i found it so moving in places that i i it was higher on my list for much of the year and i i have a lot of affection for it even though it's i i don't know i mean it's one i i have a lot of affection for but i think it might have some flaws but uh i i do recommend it i think it's on netflix now it's my golden days uh 16 i have the lobster from yorgos lanthimos um the black comedy about society where uh, the crime for being single is being turned into an animal. I think it's uh, one of the most original films uh, of recent years. I, it's it's kind of, uh, I mean, I, I was happily surprised that it was even commercially well-received because I thought with the, um, the torrent that kind of spread around last year that it had really, you know, maybe all the people that would be the target audience would have already seen it last year. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's very funny and, and, uh, Endlessly surprising film. Um, 15, I have Yourself and Yours, Hong Sang Soo. Um, I don't know when this is coming out, if at all, this year. It doesn't have a U.S. distributor yet, to my knowledge. Um, involves a couple who have a fight when rumors start spreading that the woman is dating various men behind the boyfriend's back. Um, to say more would get into spoilers, but it's whether or not the rumors are true is where things get complicated and potentially surreal. Uh, I know Boone Whale was an influence on it. Um, it's I, I'm almost tempted to rate it higher than another film of his that will come up later on the list. But um, I thought it was so much more interesting than most of the films that's at the New York Film Festival, including most of the uh, Oscar nominee films. 
Um, so I hope it gets uh, released here, and I don't want to spoil anything because I know that you guys haven't seen it. But uh, 14, I have The Childhood of a Leader, Brady Corbett. Uh, the intense, stylish, uh, almost in the vein of something like uh, child horror films like The Omen, um, but the childhood of a future fascist dictator, great score, great performances. Uh, I want to see it again. I might be underrating it, but it's definitely uh, a good sleeper film of the year. Um, 13, I have Peter and the Farm, uh, directed by Tony Stone. It's a documentary about farmer Peter Dunning. Um, what begins as a uh, kind of study of the rituals of farm life becomes kind of like a... Um, like a grim, compelling portrait of alcoholism and depression. Uh, it's one I've not really been able to shake off. I would say that there's a, quite a bit of things with animals that are going to make certain viewers queasy because it's a farm and not everything that happens to animals on a farm is very nice. Uh, so that's my only one caution for people that need that kind of warning. But I really like that film a lot. Uh, uh, 12, I have Victoria uh, Maya Vitkova. Uh, it's an epic about, uh, it begins with a young pregnant woman living in Bulgaria who longs to flee the communist, uh, society move west, but she gives birth to a baby girl. A uh, girl has no belly button and becomes a national sensation, uh, essentially child of the, ch- of the communist state and kind of a brat. Um, I don't know what to tell you without getting into spoilers, but it's a, uh, visually creative, funny, odd political allegory and, uh, First time director Maya Vitkova, she could be a real talent. Say, uh, hopefully, we'll have other chances to make more films, but uh, that's really interesting. One uh, 11, I have Happy Hour, uh, the five and a half hour Japanese epic. Uh, it's like a soap opera kind of story, you know, it's for 30 something women friends and their, their various uh, relationships and keeping secrets. And again, I not a lot of people have seen this since so I don't want to get too much into spoilers, but it's, it's the kind of thing that I sat down a little bit like, uh, do I really want to sit that through five and a half hours of anything right now? <laughs> um, but it's very engaging, very funny in places. And uh, it makes use of the epic running time by letting certain sequences play out for, you know, like almost in real time in a way that's kind of exciting. But uh, that's my number 11. Holy cow. Again, some titles in there that I've yet to see, but I probably will sooner than later. Wow, guys, that was pretty, uh, pretty intense. Pretty intense. Uh, a lot of great titles. What a year! We got to keep going, though. You know it. But first, yeah. what if we just left them in suspense? <laughs> Let's just leave them in suspense. They don't know ten through one. That's true. We could just end the podcast here. But before we continue with our top tens, I have some other top tens you might be interested in hearing about. This first one comes from Ryan Rosenberg from Melbourne, Australia. Number ten was Doggy Dog. Number nine was Sully. Number eight was Tale of Tales. Number seven was Staying Vertigo. Number six was Things to Come. Number five was Everybody Wants Some. Number four was Knight of Cups. Number three was Patterson. Number two in The Shadow of Women. And number one was L. What else do we have? Well, Peter Sipchinski for RogerEbert.com says, Number 10 was Silence. Number 9 was The Shallows. Number 8 was Rules Don't Apply. Number 7 was Certain Women. Number 6 was The Handmaiden. Number 5 was Love and Friendship. Number 4 was Knight of Cups. Number 3 was De Palma. Number 2 was L. And number 1, hmm, La La Land. Hmm. 
Steve Procopi from Ain't It Cool News and the Paul Thomas Anderson episode says, Number 10 was Christine, not to be confused with the John Carpenter classic. Number 9, Green Room. Number 8, Arrival. Number 7, The Witch. Number 6, Manchester by the Sea. Number 5 is The Lobster. Number 4 is La La Land. Number 3 is The Handmaiden. Number 2 is Moonlight. Number 1, Swiss Army Man. Wow. Jason Petrovsky from Chicago says, Ooh, number 10 is Arrival. Number 9 is Cemetery Splendor. Number 8 is La La Land. Number 7 is Midnight Special. Number 6 is Manchester by the Sea. Number 5, Chucky. Number 4, The Handmaiden. Number 3, The Fits. Number 2, Moonlight. Number 1, OJ, Made in America. And we have one from Dean Adams from L.A. Los Angeles, that is. Number 10 is Hunt for the Wilder People. Number 9 is Cemetery of Splendor. Number 8 is The Fits. Number 7, Pete's Dragon. Number 6, Hell or High Water. Number 5, Hail Caesar. Number 4, Don't Think Twice. Number 3, The Handmaiden. Number 2, Tony Erdman. And number 1, Silence. Hmm. Cool, 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 okay. Mm, got a list from Anthony Herbert. Or Herbert. Number 10 is Zootopia. Number 9 is Popstar. Never stops, never stopping. Number 8 is Green Room. Number 7 is The Nice Guys. Number Number six is The Witch. Number five is Kubo and the Two Strings. Number four is Manchester by the Sea. Number three is Everybody Wants Some. Number two, Sing Street. Number one, Arrival. Yes. Sean Pontow, a favorite that always contributes good content. He's from Rockford, Michigan. Um, he says number 10 is De Palma. Number nine is Arrival. Number eight is Moonlight. Number seven, Certain Women. Number six, Zootopia. Number five, A Monster Calls. Good call. Number four, Manchester by the Sea. Number three, Sing Street. Number two, Tony Erdman. And number one, Silencio. Okay, now back to the show. Oh, gosh. You guys came back. How cool. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate you returning for our top 10 films. Uh, I'm going to start, and then we'll go to Zach, and then we'll go to Bill. This is so exciting. I can't wait to hear everybody's choices. And I'm going to start off with a doozy. So, guys, do you want to live deliciously? Okay. Sure. Why not? I I don't, actually, but it's a complicated thing. I understand. Okay. It is very complicated because um, if you've decided to live deliciously, it's a very, very high probability that you've just sold your soul to the devil. I'm talking about my number 10 choice for 2016, which is The Vivitch, Um, also known as The Witch. Uh, I've read some criticisms, including yours, Zach, um, and I, I, I find it very interesting in regards to the portrayal of uh, just the, the, the Puritan society and um, this family. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think I, I, I can understand people just not connecting with it and finding it to be slow and unscary, but uh, I, this, this, no other film terrified me more. Um, other than maybe a couple of documentaries that we're getting to, but uh, I, I just thought it was an interesting examination of family dynamics uh, crumbling as a result of the forces of evil intervening and the temptation that comes with uh, growing old, uh, older, I should say, because it's weird, but and it's a weird comparison to make, but uh, along with a monster calls, <laughs> I just think this is a, 
an interesting fable about an adolescent being confronted with dark thoughts, dark feelings, and we get to witness how each family member processes this experience. And it's just an overall creepy trip with a great score, unsettling, beautifully shot. Um, no other film made me experience dread um, in the horror genre, at least the the way this one did. And man, they revealed the witch's hut. And uh, Black Philip is definitely the goat of the year. So uh, I'm going with the witch. I, I, I understand, you know, people having their criticisms about it. That's fine. Let's move on. Zach, what is your number 10? Uh, my number 10 is a, uh, a short film titled As Without, So Within, directed by Manuela de mm. Laborde. Uh, this is in another avant-garde short film which kind of operates as a kind of a study in sculpture. Um, it begins with these sort of grainy film transmissions uh, with sort of this like beautiful blue veil, blue veil of almost like video pixelation, but that's not really an accurate description because the film is shot in 60 millimeter. Uh, but there are of these sort of like cosmic uh, planetary images and then slowly introduces these completely like alien objects that we assume due to like the arrangement of the visual information to be uh, planetary geology. Um, and the remainder of the film is sort of this sensorial experiment where under very basic conditions, these geological structures are intercut between each other and themselves to create the illusion of like oscillation and movement, even though they're static um, and I, I just think like the results are, uh, like very viscerally relevatory. Um, those people who have been able to see the film via, uh, film projection are even more enthusiastic about its sort of visceral qualities. And I saw the film via an online screener, but all I can really say is that if you have the opportunity to see the film theatrically in the next year or so, I... I strongly encourage uh, one to the, to do so. I mean, it has a very, it's a very basic, single idea sort of film, uh, but it's I guess kind of indescribable until you see it to kind of grasp what makes it so compelling or or not compelling. You know, I I, I just I found it um, extremely sort of exciting as uh, as a sort of experimentative form. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Um, my number 10 is uh, Right Now, Wrong Then, Hong Sang-soo, a comedy drama about the womanizer film director who meets a young female painter while visiting a city, and they spend the next several hours together talking, flirting, fighting, and drinking. And then the story is retold again uh, with a number of variations on what happened the first time. Um, Hong Sang-soo is one of my favorite like working directors. I... I keep waiting for his uh, films to get better exposure. Um, he's so prolific that sometimes films slip through the cracks altogether distribution-wise. So I'm hoping that isn't the case with uh, Yourself and Yours, which I mentioned earlier. But uh, right now, Wrong Then, um, it's funny because he's somebody that – I know a few people that feel like um, – they like him, but they feel like he makes the same film often <laughs> – 
Like it's uh, variations on the same thing. So it is funny that he literally does a variation on the same thing <laughs> within film. Um, but yeah, it, it, beyond the fact of the formal conceit, though, it, it reminds me of the way um, like someone like Hal Hartley, you know, retold the same story two different ways in Flirt back oh, in the yeah. '90s. But um, but yeah, I just find his uh, work always very. Uh, funny and interesting and compelling and this this i mean reminds me of of certain other uh hong sang films like woman on the beach uh but he's never made a film i didn't really enjoy in the moment and uh this is no exception um yeah so that's my number 10 we'll be hearing about that one again momentarily in the meantime number nine is a genuine surprise a film that uh i didn't hear too much about sort of stumbled upon it on netflix and I knew Bill was a fan, but um, you know, even just looking at the letterbox ratings, I was like, uh, I don't know if I have to make this one a priority or not. It seems to be mostly getting a lukewarm reception, and I could not disagree with it more. Number nine is, I never thought I would say this, but Brady Corbett made a movie, and it's called The Childhood of a Leader. Um, you know, again, I haven't I need to see it again too. I've, I mean, I've only seen it a few days ago, and maybe I am kind of riding on a high, initial high from it. But this is kind of, uh, I mean, Cor- obviously Corbett's worked with some great filmmakers, and he really took some of the best elements of the other filmmakers he's probably inspired by and channeled it into this very original narrative. Um, which, yeah, I mean, I do have an affinity for. The, the crazy kid genre, I think. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Joshua and The Omen. and um, I don't know. The Good Son is a horrible movie, but I still like it. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, like, there's just... Uh, I don't know. There's something about seeing um, young kids tap into uh, just their, uh, their evil nature that uh, really I find compelling and terrifying and just... It's it's probably because we're not used to seeing uh, that kind of vulnerability in a child shape into something like uh, becoming a dictator, and uh, you know it's 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 very languid. It takes its time, but I think in a very effective way. It becomes very tension-inducing, especially as we get to um, a rather shocking confrontation that takes place uh, over dinner. And Scott Walker's score deserves all the recognition in the world. Um, and the performance by the young boy is... N- it's not unlike uh, Danny Torrance in The Shining, I think. Mm. He's, got, he's got a similar look to him any, uh, anyway. But um, yeah, again, it's a slow movie. It doesn't reveal all its cards, um, including the ending, which I'm still a little baffled by, but in a good way, I think. Uh, and I don't know, man. I, I found it to be incredibly audacious unexpectedly moving in a way just because you know anytime i see a child enduring some sort of trauma or struggling it it really it affects me it affects me on a very deep profound level um and i know you can maybe cite the influences uh, of brady corbett just by watching this movie and i know other reviews have probably done that but i still think the end result is really really remarkable I'm so glad you liked that one because I, I that was one of my favorites of the year, and uh, but it didn't strike me as a uh, a no brainer gym movie, so I wasn't sure if you'd be restless or put off by it. But so I'm glad that I was, uh, I'm glad that you liked it. 
Crazy kid, you got me. You got you got. <laughs> I'm I'm in. What's yours, Zach? Zach, 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 Zach. Uh, my number nine. Uh, I have Moonlight, directed by mm-hmm. Barry Jenkins. Um, which we kind of were talking a little bit about this earlier, but I I think unfortunately, kind of is a film that never was given the opportunity to kind of simply exist. Yeah. Um, outside of the context of being uh, culturally and sick, significant and, you know, the must-see movie, whatever that means, you know, like, must-see for who? Like, you know, uh, it, it very much, it feels like at this point, it's kind of like, it's, it's the movie that you have to watch to fulfill your portion of eating, you know, the cultural vegetables. <laughs> um so I think those demands impose a lot of, you know, preemptive assumptions about the film's subject matter. I think about its sort of mis- aesthetic makeup. Um, and I th- don't feel like there was a lot of, I don't feel like there's been a really, a lot of thoughtful discourse around it. I mean, there's one really great piece in Cinemascope by Phil Calderon um, that I think really successfully distills the film's accomplishments thoughtfully. Um but I think even for me, when I first viewed this film, I, I had expectations that to some degree were unmet. Um, and I had to think more about it. And the more I thought about what this film really is, I guess the more exciting I found it. Um, because I don't think it's the typical sort of prestige picture. Um, and for me, I guess the the greatest thing that I tapped into and what I think maybe makes this film significant for me is that we have not had a film of this kind in America that actually is talking about poverty. Um, Hmm. And I think this film does that in a way that few films successfully achieve just in regards to the textures of what it's like living in poverty, the way that in the first chapter of the film, Chiron is really left to his own devices, which, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't use that, that narrative concept to kind of push anything into into some kind of like absurd thematic direction. It's very common things like the way he prepares a bubble bath or the way that he prepares a meal um, and just kind of the way that he he notices objects in the film and then kind of learns to create his own identity according to his interactions with those things. Um, and I also think that I have really grown fascinated with how this film negotiates all of these sort of physical structures of narrative storytelling, but, but even more so sort of the human body, uh, like perhaps more so than any other commercial film that was released this year in the United States. I think Moonlight maybe most resembles the, like the structural form of poverty, uh, not poverty <laughs> in poetry, a uh, form of poetry and how it both manifests the body aesthetically on screen, but how the structure, this sort of, almost ellipses is in itself like a bodily shape. Um, and I just, uh, you know, there's also the, the thing of it being a piece of 
of black art. And I think that that there's a, a lot of people kind of are hesitant to go there, I guess, or, but I think just recently getting to see Carrie James Marshall, uh, who's an American painter at the Met, uh, I saw a lot of illusions in sort of in moonlight in relation to his work. And so it kind of grounds this film also grounds itself, uh, sort of within a tradition, um, of, uh, of, of black art, uh, which I think is also, you know, significant and worthy of, of praise. Uh, but also just, you know, I, I appreciate the textures of the film, you know, the, the ocean, the, 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 the bed sheets, all of those things. And then everything leading to that, that meal in the diner, uh, which I think is, Mm-hmm. terrific and i think andre holland gives a, a terif- terrific performance and i think it's interesting talking the end of the film came up earlier um like i've i've read some writing that kind of puts that in the contest of uh context of fassbinder a little bit uh which i th- which i think is interesting hmm. um but yeah i you know i it's a it's a film i'm anxious to revisit um in the future and i think all three actors that play chiron at different stages of his life are terrific and very distinctive in the way that they at least physically perform it's a i feel like it's a for me it's a film about the body it's about the vulnerability of the body and it doesn't necessarily articulate that in sort of the most obvious of ways i mean i i will say (laughs) two things that i think are not so strong about the film i think generally the dialogue is pretty terrible uh and naomi harris as chiron's mother i don't think really achieves breaks that threshold of sort of like a stereotypical you know addictive parent performance Mm -hmm. Uh, i also think it's troubling that in her like at her thr roundtable she said she did all of her research through youtube um which I, for me, I'm like, well, it shows. So, uh, but no, I, no, but I, I think, uh, I think in, if I just look at it as a, a movie about growing up in poverty, um, it corresponds a great deal with my own experience. But, uh, and I, and I think that's important. I, I think it's important that at least Hollywood start making films about people who are living, you know, in poverty again. Amen. Now I feel like a dick yeah. for having it so low. No, at least it's on. <laughs> no, very good. Yeah, yeah. Mo- Moonlight is one that I I liked it when I saw it. I didn't love it, and it's the thing where after after I because I, I saw. No, I had honestly, I had a similar reaction to you yeah. as you as well. I think we talked about it. Yeah, um, it's just something that I guess. The film, ha- I've kept thinking mm-hmm. about it, and I guess that's yeah. partially why it's here to some degree. Yeah, well, it's funny, and I'm glad that you mentioned the dialogue, because I remember the dialogue being something that caught me at the time when I was watching it. I knew that it was starting to get buzz as a masterpiece even before it played New York Film Festival. Yeah. And it's hard to... I mean, since since I saw it, it kind of became the film of the moment in a lot of places, and I couldn't tell if mm-hmm. I was being contrarian and not thinking it was greater or that I really just needed to see it again. And it was a film that I would be on the same page upon rewatch. And I just haven't had time to see it again. 
Um, it's, it's definitely an interesting film, and I, there's so much on paper that I like about it. I like the conversations that it starts. But, yeah, I, 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 it's one that, I, I, I don't know, I, just, I probably would need to see it again to know if I'm being too resistant or if I was... If my or if my first impression was still going to be what I feel about it on rewatch, I don't know. But um, uh, my number my number nine is um, uh, it's a film that I saw at the New York Film Festival in 2015, uh, but it came out this year and uh, it was my number one for most of the year. It's I'm surprised it's actually gone so low, but it's uh, Pitchapong. We rest the Thackles, uh, Cemetery of Splendor. Um, it's kind of a moody, unusual film about a uh, nurse tending soldiers uh, suffering from a sleeping sickness uh, where fluorescent devices are being employed to give them good dreams. It's totally original uh, film, uh, very, um, I hate to say dreamlike because it's talking about dreams, but the, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful, uh, funny. Uh, it's, it's, um, it has psychics and ghosts and supernatural things, but it also has Randy sexual humor that keeps it from growing too earnest or too tranced out. Um, I think it's kind of a perfect film if you get into the rhythm of it. I know it's very, like the slow pace can kind of, um, like the people falling asleep around me in the theater. I know that I think Patrick Rapol, uh, you know, couldn't really connect with it when he tried watching it. Uh, I think according to his letterbox review, but uh, yeah, no, I thought it was, one of the best films of the year and I uh, hope more people do see it. I think it's on Netflix now. DJ Sk- Soulscape. At the end there. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. It's a great, great, use, great yeah. use of music. Yeah, definitely. I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, it's a little higher on my list. And uh, I'm not going to say the director's name as uh, <laughs> well, succinctly and beautifully as you did. Well, let me just say this. I mean, my order for the top ten yeah. is re- really. I mean, it changes by the. I know, minute. I know. Like, I, don't no, have, I, I always say that. Yeah. I always say that. Yeah. Man, this can change tomorrow. You know, yeah. especially since you know we didn't really bring up titles that we missed that we wish we could have gotten to. But um, I would say twentieth century women and Patterson were two that come to mind. And yeah, Pat- Patterson is. Is also the yeah. case for me. Um, okay, uh, which I know, which I know, Bill didn't isn't didn't like. It seems as yeah. much as yeah, the masses are. No, I didn't. And uh, again, I don't know if that's one where rewatch would help. I normally like Jim Jarmusch a whole lot. I'm a defender of even some of the films that people think are his misses, like Limits of Control. Um, just felt too cute for me. But I mean, maybe I'm being a dick. I don't know. But uh, it's it's fine. It's not a bad movie. Um, I get why people like it. But uh, yeah, it didn't do a whole lot for me. You know what other movie is cute? Sing Street. <laughs> um. Anyway, number eight. We're there, aren't we? Yeah. Wow. Yes. Okay. Things to come. I'm just gonna come out and say it, man. This is my uh, first Mia Hansen love film. Uh, and it won't be my last, that's for sure. In fact, uh, I, I do have a DVD of um, Goodbye First Love mm-hmm. waiting for me. Uh, so I'll get to that. Uh, you, you know, and I know some people prefer L in terms of the uh, incredible streak that Isabel Hupea had, and I would concur. But I, at least for this film, I found it to be more consistent in tone, and it kind of just – it's representative of my uh, view on relationships and kind of – uh, just a close relationship that you can have to a professor and mentor. 
Um, and it just it balances out a lot of interesting dynamics among very relatable people throughout. Um, just really, really well observed. Uh, you know, it's not like you're going to watch this and see something original or something maybe you haven't seen before. It's just a kind of a, a, a dramedy done the way I would like it to be done. Um, and watching this pretty closely to Louder Than Bombs may have hurt <laughs> Louder Than Bombs because... I mean, that one sort of deals more with uh, a sudden loss as well, but it just did not strike me um, as much as this one did, and uh, Louder Than Bombs has a very annoying, angst-ridden teenager um, interspersed throughout the film that kind of irked me, but I think that was the intent behind his character anyway, was to irk you, but uh, I just thought it was a really assured portrayal of relationship disintegration and trying to reconnect with other people if possible or just essentially come to terms with being alone too uh, which reminds me of a film like living out loud where a female protagonist just decides that oh, i don't need a man to complete my life and i certainly don't have to place all this weight in my marriage that i thought i had to before um, and it's beautifully contained in a scene where she's making dinner and her ex-husband is there kind of in the background and she's ignoring him essentially just focusing on making dinner. So I think that that scene is really special. I think the whole movie is. And um, again, Isabel Huppert, actress of the year, right? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, things to come. I, I, I can't wait to see this one again too. Yeah. Um, I think it's getting a proper release later this month or next month. I, th- so. I think it's, I, it, it, it did come out. Around uh, New York already, I think, and uh, maybe DC. Um, we'll be talking about it again. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, my number eight is The Lobster, mm. which we've kind of danced around throughout the episode. I am, I am curious. Before, just do we want to talk about why you don't feel the end, the second half of the film, well, is successful? I, mean, I, I just, I, if I just, I don't know. It felt like. Hmm. I mean, I understand where it goes and decides to ultimately shift to uh, you know the uh, his interest in Rachel Vice and sort of just introduce this whole other faction of people who rebel against what's taking place in the hotel. I think the hotel stuff is just funnier and kind of more engaging. But I mean, there's certain moments like when they're dancing in the forest or whatever to no music, if I recall. Um, there are certain moments of that that I like, but I kind of. I kind of tune out. I just don't, I don't connect with it um, as as much as the first half. But I think it's another that we, you know, this is like a broken record. But if we, if I rewatch it, knowing Mm -hmm. what I'm in for and knowing that okay, the second half does take this kind of turn, I might warm up to it better. In the way that it flows, it reminds me of some of the Charlie Kaufman scripts where a lot of the surreal, a lot of the surreal gags are top heavy in the first forty minutes, and then it, it kind of becomes another thing in the second half. Sure. You tune out at the moment that Leo Sadu enters the film. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, no, I, I think uh, looking at this film, like in terms of film in relation to in, in film being a work of literature or you know a literary work, yeah. uh, I think this film is hugely successful, and that's why I also thought you know it was the best screenplay of the year. Uh, I think for me, what I like about the transition into the forest is that it enlarges the scope 
of the film's universe. And I think the running theme throughout this film is sort of this idea of aristocracy and that these sort of uh, political structures exist in every form of community, no matter how radical or free that community sees itself. And, you know, also the, the rebellion is sort of their structure is designed in response to an extremely, you know, authoritarian structure. So it's sort of revealing in that when you live in such sort of strict political environments, to some degree, the imagination you have about what a freer society can be is limited. Um, But I also think that there's a lot of great physical comedy within the film. Uh, Like there's a, the great sequence where uh, Colin Farrell is handcuffed. uh, Is it to the back of his, to his belt or something like that? And he has to try, he has to sleep with the (laughs) handcuff behind his back and try to get out of his clothes while he still has his hand handcuffed. I think there, he, Lanthimos designs a lot of scenes around sort of like letting the physical comedy breathe and sure, sure, live yeah. in the moment, which is is very true of I think uh, all of his work. Um, but I th- I also think as um, like an English language debut of a foreign filmmaker, the fact that he isn't destroyed by it is mm-hmm. kind of significant because so often foreign language film directors who make that transition do not survive the the shift but luckily because he is actually like sort of a UK based uh, filmmaker he's also familiar with the environment but I think the ensemble it was great to see John C. Riley get to do something fun um, and as Colin Farrell I think it's the best performance he's given in his career yes um, where the finally the first time we i feel like he is shedding whatever image that he's been trying to perpetuate all these years he's comfortable now with not being sort of this bad boy um but yeah i just i found the film completely um enjoyable from start to finish i i I don't know that i feel like it's uh deeply thoughtful but I think the distinctions and sort of the option observations it, it's making are are enjoyable. Um, so, well, you're not alone in that thinking. Uh, certainly, we learned last year that Shane Carruth is a fan. So uh, that, that of the lobster, yeah. yeah. Mm. Th- that reason alone, uh, the fact that he you know let me know that it was one of his favorites of last year, um, is enough to get me to watch it again. Let's see, where are we? Bill? Yeah, number eight, yeah. Um, so I had uh, A Quiet Passion, uh, Terrence Davies' film. Uh, it's a story of Emily Dickinson. Um, oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's like a funny drawing room comedy, um, funnier even than uh, Love and Friendship in that same territory. But then it also uh, hit some of the same kind of uh, heavy melancholic notes as like some of the, uh, the prime Bergman or Fassbender chamber dramas. Uh, it, it really covers the whole emotional spectrum in a really effective way. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, I've never seen Sex in the City, so I don't have any real connection with what I guess she's best known for. I know her from James White as the mother 
And she's even better in this than she was in that, and she's amazing in that as well. Yikes. Um, so I I would say that um, I don't know when it's a, I know it's coming out in Europe in the spring so hopefully we'll get it around then in the United States as well but I thought this was even better than Sunset Song as far as Terrence Davies is here and uh, yeah no I I expected to see it on, expect to see it on a lot of lists next year because I know it only is a festival film this year but uh, it, it I saw it um, after seeing. Tony Erdman and Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight, uh, uh, Almodovar's uh, Julieta, like all these things that were like being built up as like the event pictures and uh, Patterson. And I thought Quiet Passion blew away almost everything I saw at that festival. So I, I'm excited to see what Ooh. people think of it next year. Well, we'll see soon enough. Yeah. I can't wait. Uh, I, I like Emily Dickinson. I like Terrence Davies. I like Cynthia Nixon. Um, she was in. I want to say the Philadelphia Experiment or no, the Manhattan Project, maybe. Yeah, I don't, like a teenager. I can't remember. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's been around for a while. She just hasn't starred in a whole lot that I've seen. But um, it's it's almost similar to uh, what Terrence Davies did with Jillian uh, uh, Anderson for the House of Mirth, mm. just uh, you know taking her out of her comfort zone and really uh, showcasing a, a fine uh, performance and uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. Number seven is one I'm not going to say a whole lot about because I'm not 100% sure what it's about, and that's Cemetery of Splendor. <laughs> I'm not going to try to pronounce the director's name. You did it so well, Bill. Maybe I'll insert a clip of you saying it from earlier here. Uh, but you could just call him Joe. Yeah, all right. Yeah, Joe. Yo, Joe. <laughs> you did a great job with uh, this dreamy and surreal film. I don't know what it's about, but I'm guessing it's uh, a wild, allegorical, philosophical examination of, um, I don't know, it, it, could, it could dive into sort of political structures as well. I'm sure that's there. Um, it's similar to like, there's, there's certain movies that I, I go online and read either through um, other sources or other reviews that say, oh, this is political, and obviously this country had um, you know, conflicts with this other country, or this film is really um, an indictment about what's going on in this country. And you know, because I'm, I'm just not as well-read in that regard, sometimes I don't pick up on those things. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, there's some deeper themes at play here that uh, I'm not 100% sure about. But in terms of its aesthetics... Uh, the cinematography, um, and just I'm a fa- I'm fascinated by dreams. I'm fascinated by some of the elements of this film. It's one of the slowest films of the year, but I think it's rewarding and hypnotic. And just like Uncle Boomy, I have no fucking clue what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> My number seven is right now wrong then, which we've kind of talked about already. I think. Um, a terrific comedy of manners, and I, th- you know, I think it's significant that the written that the written material of this film has to be pretty incredible to be able to withstand the repetition that it undergoes. I mean, I know there's a shift in behavior in the two performances, but largely, you know, the structure. And the the topic of conversation is lar- largely stays the same. 
I also kind of see this movie as um, like one of those films that kind of feels like your favorite record in a way. Uh, and that literally has the A side and B side right next to each other. Um, that is just something you can just put on and just in, revel in the enjoyment of it. And it's not demanding of you at all. Just absolutely, you know, a euphoric, pleasant viewing experience. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, my my number seven is one that will probably be the uh, only time we're talking about it is the uh, the Neon Demon Nicholas Winding Reference film. Um, this is my favorite oh. film to get a wide U.S. release in 2016. Um, I think it's stylish fun. Um, I <laughs> I I think it's my idea of great escapist entertainment. <laughs> um, there was a um, there's a Truffaut quote. Um, I demand that a film express either the joy of making cinema or the agony of making cinema. I'm not interested in anything in between. And for me, this expresses the joy of cinema. I mean, I don't think what it has to say about the fashion industry or models is especially profound, but I don't need it to be. Mm -mm. Um, I just enjoy it. Uh, I, I think almost every sequence is a lot of, uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's pleasing to look at and, I found it quite surprising where it goes in the third act when I saw it. Um, I understand the reservations people have of it. And I sometimes think that Nicholas Winding Refn's fans can be a little bit overbearing online, but um, I would be lying if I said I didn't love this film. I, I might even like it. Well, I don't know if I like it more than uh, Driver Bronson, but I do like it uh, quite a lot. And I think it's uh, be bewildering in how uh, few people seem to agree with me. But uh, yeah, that's my number seven. Are you sober right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand. I, it's just, I don't know, man. I just, I, I'm tuning out when it comes to the world of ref and I just think you should direct music videos. Yeah. But, um, you know, I still, I admire, I admire his, um, intention not necessarily his execution wasn't too crazy about some performances and i don't know i just the the way it decides to conclude without getting giving anything away was just too reminiscent of a movie i love far more that you probably know bill uh, well we'll talk <laughs> the, about no defend you know it's a yeah yeah no, no I, know, I, I know it i know that film and, and it's not as good as defend <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 of course. Now, for number six, because we've all brought it up so well, you two have brought it up so far. Um, again, I won't say too much, and that's uh, right now, wrong then. This is kind of like the uh, Richard Linkletter film of the year for me. Um, but it's directed by a filmmaker I can't wait to get more familiar with based on my love of his naturalistic style. And it's a very charming and relatable film. But, you know, it's, uh, I think his magic comes from the use of framing and long shots and just letting scenes breathe with these characters. Um, you know, and I, I almost feel like when I, when I begin to feel cynical about meeting new people, I should just think of this film or I should just watch this film. And, it, you know, it leaves you with both the ups and downs of what it's like to have a connection with somebody. And I love that it kind of finds this balance, but not really. Uh, it's just, and I love just the idea of, you know, an hour of this story and then another hour with that story retold with little nuances changed. And, 
I'm I'm putting this director at the top of my list of um, someone I want to catch up with more in 2017 because I love this movie. And also, I don't think any of us have mentioned, but Kim Min Hee. Yeah, she had a great year as well. Oh, she sure did, and she is she is stunning, stunning. Uh, My number five is Anna Butler's The Love Witch. Did you say number six? Oh, wait, yes. Number six, whoops, <laughs> is Anna Biller's The Love Witch. I don't know why I said number five. Uh, I have both of you seen Viva, her first film? I did. Yeah, I like that. I one. haven't yet. No. I think it's interesting that people kind of place her within this sort of like pastiche definition because i don't see her work in that way I, I i mean i see anna biller to some degree the same ways that i look at someone like john waters sure in that their her films are funny but they're not i don't think they're being ironic no yeah i get that impression too i feel like the love witch is really kind of like an exploration of an archetype and kind of like poking the holes in that from every direction. Hmm. I think for me, though, what I was at least fascinated with during my screening of it was the way that it kind of was this very mundane film about processes, the process of burying a body, the process of casting a spell, the process of creating the witch bottle, so much of that movie is the process of seduction just watching this woman enact processes that in some ways like i think a good film to watch it with would be like ackerman jean dealman Mm. because so much of the love witch is a person in her apartment making something and all of the little details that go into doing so um I think, you know, the way that she, in a lot of ways, mobilizes color is really unique and terrific. I mean, I echo your sentiments about it being one of the best shot films of the year. It's beautifully mm-hmm. photographed. And, and it's one of those things when I'm looking at it, because I'm not treating it ironically, like a lot of people in my audience were, but I do get this sense of like, was this what it was like in the seventies to see films like, you know, was this what it, is this what it felt like almost because I'm treating it just as sincerely as I would anything from the vernacular of what she is sort of referencing. But I do, I just, the argument that her film are like films are camp parody. I just, uh, I feel like you're missing all of the beautiful nuances that make her work. Uh, so fascinating and I'm just really excited to see what she does in the future yeah I just picked up her uh, collection of short films directly from her website but I haven't had a chance to watch them before we recorded but everything I've seen Mm -hmm. so far I mean I I think she's definitely an original voice and uh, I'm excited to dig further back into her short film work but yeah Love Witch is number 26 on my list loved it 
my number six is The Other Side, Roberto Minervini's uh, hybrid documentary portrait of junkies, ex-cons, and right-wing militias in rural Louisiana. I haven't uh, I haven't rewatched it since Donald Trump won the Electoral College votes, but uh, it's probably even more disturbing to watch now. Um, but yeah, I think it's full of striking uh, images and repellent behavior, uh, but it's unforgettable and uh, kind of underrated because I saw some of the bad reviews of it. I don't quite understand it, but I, it does revel in ugliness. So I guess that's never going to win over everybody. But um, yeah, it's on Fandor and Amazon Instant now. You can find it on there. I, I think it's definitely one of the most interesting films of the year. Yeah. And I can't believe that sex scene in it, too. Yeah. It's like, this is a documentary! Well, some of it is probably staged. I mean, that's the whole yeah. notion of hybrid documentary. I mean, there's definitely things that are, are, are you know, you, you wonder how much of it is true, but it doesn't even really matter right. because it, the, the larger point is still being made. I, I, I do want to say, though, like, I have a problem with say like the criticism that it it revels in yeah like ugliness is that i do you too. know this is the state of these people's actual lives right and i do think actually one of the things that's interesting to watch it post trump's election is that there is a lot of political conversation within the film and Definitely. so often people of this demographic are framed in a certain way as if they Ignorant, yeah, ignorant to the realities of how the political systems operate in their lives, and they're not at all right. There's clear racism prevalent, but it's also interesting that alongside that, there's these contradictions about a desire for peace in the Middle East and you know the ending of world hunger like the conversation i think at the during the christmas dinner and just really like this pleading the just like give us jobs and so i think in that regard it's really fascinating and i just think to criticize the film because it's ugly i don't know it's it's like you're dis- you're not even you don't even understand what it is like i i just yeah, I it's mean, like you, it's because you don't want to see this. Yeah, well. it's 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 the argument that people have. It's like, why would I want to spend time with these people? That I've right. I've even seen that on Amazon. Uh, like there there were a lot of negative reviews um, when I looked at it on, on Amazon, and I think it's really just that that kind of reaction that you're right. Talking and that about. and that response is indicative of a, of a great problem. Yeah, these people are not represented ever, and the fact that you don't want to see it is saying something in of that's itself why, that's why you have the events that transpire do mm-hmm. the longer you ignore what's in front of you because you, you're uncomfortable with it or you don't understand it or that then it's going to, it's going to come back to scare the shit out of you <laughs> or bite you on the butt oh my god but I do have a I do have a little bit of a problem. I mean, the sex scene is interesting because I actually had to kind of stop watching the film for a minute in that moment, not because of any discomfort of watching two people ha- having sex, but I guess I, I I was suspicious of why I'm seeing this exactly. Yeah, there are certain things in the film. I'm not sure what the intention of it is exactly. Mm. Yeah, it seemed out of place. 
So we, uh, I hate to be a fucking cock knocker, but um, we do have to go a little quicker. Um, so number five for me is the Illinois Parables. Uh, Patrick's review on Letterboxd is one of my favorite reviews of the year. <laughs> so I'll link to that in the show notes. But it's it's really just an hour-long foray into different stories about the way um, people come in to sort of conquer other cultures uh, that are perceived to be different. So it's not unlike um, just, you know, again, in, the, in this political climate, it's even more relevant. Um, it showcases really what... Um, you know, a power trip can do to certain people, and it does it with precision, a certain versatility and style with each story, a lot of pathos, um, just a lot of inventiveness in terms of um, how it's presenting these stories. And I love that the director doesn't spell out any answers or ideas directly at times, and she's really something, really, like, unlike anything I've seen this year, um, and an, an incredible experience seeing this at uh, like Northwestern with Patrick, with the director in attendance, hearing people's reactions about clashing ideologies and technology and the sense of displacement. This is one of the more unique works of art that I've seen. I mean, people can be like, it's a short film and it's an hour long. Don't put it on your list. But some I've seen other critics have, and they should. It's a fantastic work of art. The Illinois Parables. I don't know how you can see it, <laughs> but at some point, hopefully, you can. Yeah, it's, okay. it's 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 right below the the twenty five that we talked about on my own personal list. It's a very good film, and uh, it's one I'm excited to see again. Hopefully, one day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, Zach, you're up. Uh, my number five is Andrei Zulovsky's Cosmos. Oh yeah, I need to see that again for sure because I didn't get it, but I liked it. It's what's funny. I liked it, but I didn't get it. Yeah, I'm not equipped with the literary knowledge to sort of assert any assured interpretation. Zulovsky was kind of someone I kind of eventually came to this year, like seeing Possession for the first time and um, the most important thing, Love. And there's definitely allusions to aspects of those films most present. I mean, I I know, Bill, you've seen more of his work. Is it... Is it common that he has um, sort of effeminate male characters like parading around? Yeah, yeah, that's in that's in that's in several of them. <laughs> but I think what I appreciate about this film is sort of like just this fascinating collage of elements that are constantly generating this tension between them. It seems like Zulowski's parametric of his aesthetic is sort of performance, and he's got a real strong preoccupation with the haptic in a way that is maybe not perhaps so obvious because his frames are often his films are often framed in a very sort of um, wide composition. I, I know I brought him up earlier, but it, it, there are aspects of Cosmos that very much feel like a Jerry Lewis film to me at times in the way that he kind of just lets the body run rampant. Mm-hmm, yeah. And sort of these sort of farcical elements. But, you know, I'm at a place right now where I kind of prefer films that maybe I don't necessarily think uh, are perfect, whatever that means, but they have these sort of strange rhythms or like these 
mundane passages that kind of disrupt the casual rhythm that most films exist within that encourage me to want to rewatch them. And I just, I feel like this film, which very much I think is a work of great surrealism is that. And like I said, you know, Jonathan Janae, I think is delivers this incredible uninhibited exhausting performance. And I think that that extends to several other performers within the film. I mean, one of my favorite sequences in any film this year is there's a dinner table scene where his character and then the female protagonists are almost like communicating like through these bodily gestures with their hands running over the table mm-hmm. that really starts to drift almost like into uh, performance art like visual vernacular and I just I feel like Zulovsky's somebody who really uses the entire arsenal of the gram- grammar of cinema to, to tell a story Yeah, and it's actually my number five also. Uh, oh, wow! Yeah, I saw it only days after Zhravsky passed away in the company of three friends who are maybe even bigger fans of the director than I am, um, two of whom are involved in one or more Blu-ray releases for this title. Um, so I have some biases outside the film itself. Um, I even had dinner uh, technically with Jonathan Jenna. He was at the far end of the table, though, so I didn't really talk to him. But... Um, yeah, I does he is he as manic? No, no, he's he's nothing like the character. But uh, yeah, I I mean, yeah, I was happy that Zhivovsky went out on a high note. You know, I mean, I I think every one of his films has things to recommend, and I don't think he has a film that isn't interesting. And Cosmos, the first time I saw, I mean, there are things about it that I found I had not read the novel, and there's there, there's things about it that might feel a little opaque in places on a first viewing, and I think that. I, I don't know how people that have no experience with Jawaski even come to a film like this without, you know, just being totally bewildered. Um, the fact that it has better distribution than most of his key work is a little ironic, maybe. But uh, I, I think um, I've seen it a couple times. I, it gets richer for me every time. It's totally surprising and lively and sexy and funny. And I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that he got to make one more film before he passed away. And I wish he hadn't pressed away at all and i wish he could have made more films but uh yeah it's it, i i think it's uh it's one i'm excited to, to you know to live with for a long time and uh yeah that's my number five <laughs> well i'll definitely pick up the uh blu-ray on this one and give it another look see because it was certainly it was a very interesting movie marty <laughs> When you uh, pick it up, you get the region. You have a region-free player. Get the Arrow Films Edition because it has uh, special oh, features you know by I Daniel Bird and essays by Sam Deegan. Yeah, both of which you can hear on the Supporting Characters podcast over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. Okay. Um, number four for me is Tower, a very hard movie to talk about. Um, it's ooh, it's basically targets. Um, in documentary form and for a good 90 minutes I was shaking and it places you right in the middle of the action very effectively and I have a fondness for this rotoscoping technique ever since Waking Life I 
it's it's just I don't know what it does to me. It just I, I approve. <laughs> I mean, it's really just a, a style that I find really visually arresting in, in the moments that I'm I'm caught up in the world, and I, I mean it it envelops you into the moment in such a visceral manner. It does cut away from the action um, early on and a couple of times maybe intermittently, but it really is just uh, the, one of the most original movies of the year. And I like that it never delves into the psyche of the sniper or even shows him at any point at all. It's just... I know some people have a disconnect with the way the story was presented, but along with my number three, it showcases pure evil in an unflinching manner and sometimes it can come out of nowhere <sighs> so yeah number four is tower let's move on <laughs> uh my number four is tony erdman oh yeah i've heard of that yeah <laughs> i'm a little i guess i'm a little hesitant to talk about it too specifically because i feel like a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to see it and it is a film that yeah. i think operates on this agenda of the unexpected in a way Mm -hmm. but i just think first of all for someone to take in a lot of ways which is a very old and tired form that comes from a very like classically realist tradition and kind of reinvent it into something that is conventional but so endearing and kind of has this moment-to-moment inventiveness that is very rare for a film of its shape is kind of like insane like i i will say when i saw it i had this expectation of this great comedy and for like the first hour i was like this is this is so sad like everything yeah that's my reaction too i was like huh but in some ways, that sadness, the melancholy of it, that also is like this razor-sharp observation of like what adult, you know, what parent relationships are with their children once they become mm. adults. Like there were so many things I identified uh, in relationship to my my relationship with my mother that just felt like that those things are very well observed, and there's just a lot of terrific like behavioral comedy just kind of strange thing like these high wire like these two huge set pieces that are kind of remarkable and do not the first that does not relieve that tension that you have that just puts you totally over the edge and then finally you're given that release um but there you know it i've heard i've read some people kind of compare it to cassavetti's which I definitely can see. I also think of someone like Rivette in some regards, like the way that behavior continues to unfold over the course of all these different moments and that you can have like totally almost um, surrealistic moments that do not correspond to reality. Like how does her father seem to appear at the most inopportune times imaginable like it just is that that's not you know that's not realistically possible but it's something that you totally accept within the language of the film i guess it's like believe the hype 
you know, I, I mean, I know Bill and I have talked about, I don't, I do not think this is, you know, the greatest film of the decade or anything. Um, I, I see and understand why people are responding so affectionately towards it. Me too. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's another one that it nearly made my top 25. If I wasn't including things that I saw at festivals only, it would, it would be on the list, but, uh, yeah, it is a film that, um, yeah, the expectations again. It's it's it's. It, I I had some staggering like things to like kind of have to get past when I saw. It, as far as like, oh, it's one of the top twenty. You know, it's what top hundred films of this you know of the decade. Even before mm-hmm. it played the New York Film Festival, and it was like the sensation of Cannes, and and, and before the decade is over. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, but I really loved it. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope that uh, the hype doesn't hurt it for people that are just coming to it now but uh, my number four is uh, L the Paul Verhoeven film um, it's funny when you think about something like um, Punch Drunk Love the uh, one of the things I love about the strategy of that was that it takes the childish angry Adam Sandler character out of that universe and puts it into the dark LA of Paul Thomas Anderson's films um, this almost feels like taking the slightly icy sexually forthright Isabel Huppert persona of things like Piano Teacher or Abuse of Weakness and putting her in something that might be like a conventional rape revenge thriller in other hands. Um, I just thought it was funny and scary and always surprising. And uh, I don't even know that I find it like enjoyable just because it's fun to talk about. I think I just, just as a, as a, as a, drama that just is pleasurable for me at every turn. I think Elle is one of the best films of the year. For a while, I thought it might be the best film, but uh, it's it's definitely one that I've I've seen it twice on the big screen. I've liked it a lot both times, and um, I was never even really the biggest Paul Verhoeven guy. Like, I mean, I've liked a lot of his films, but he was never one of my my directors, so it was, it's kind of nice to see him come at this stage of his career with something uh, that might stand up to uh, anything else he's done, including the, the early Dutch films or Robocop or whatever. It's one, definitely one of my favorites so it's my number four yeah it's a very thoughtful film in in the character uh you know and just i mean just really it's layered there's a lot going on there's a lot you can say about how she reacts to what she's been through and i think i think again it's one of those movies that it, it's going to bring up a lot of great conversation which i can wholeheartedly endorse for that number three I Olga Hepnarova. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's great. It really is. It's. I know it's coming out in March, I believe, but um, I mean, I had the opportunity to see it, you know, in 2016, and I'm counting it for right now. But I know people get weird about that stuff. But I just truly, truly was engaged by this film. And, you know, it, it, it follows, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's a real life person who, you know, was a traumatized psychiatric hospital survivor and decided at one point in her life, kind of randomly, but at the same time planned, uh, she drove a truck that she used for her job onto a crowded Prague sidewalk and killed eight people, injuring 12 back in the early 70s and we get to see that horror play out unrelentingly as well as the ramifications she experienced Um, and when she was offered an alternative to the death penalty if she pled insanity uh, you know, she should get a lighter sentence but she refused 
And, you know, she addresses the court insisting that she was no crazier than the culture that produced her and caused her to react the way that she did. So it is a very cold, unrelenting character study of someone who experiences very little empathy and you're sort of not given necessarily the answer as to why she is the way she is. She just is that way. And she decides to justify her actions by essentially blaming society um, and the way they treat her and the way they look at her for ostracizing her. So it is really a remarkable piece of work. Like I mentioned, the cinematography, the lead performance. um, I mean, between this and tower, like all, and with all the violence that's prevailed, in 2016, I would say that, you know, that film and this film just reached out and shook me and kind of just, it's like the fucking hand in Videodrome came out of the TV, grabbed me by the neck and jostled me into shock and dismay. And yet it's, um, sounds horrible. (laughs) Well, in a good way, uh, I think it uh, allows me to confront the reality of things that actually take place even today. And it's sad and true, but we get to experience, we get to be in, you know, uh, essentially a sociopath's shoes for a while, and it's not a comfortable place to be, but the way the film is presenting this character, I think, is incredible. So, see this movie, everybody, when it comes out in theaters. I know I will, too. Uh, my number three is Kelly Reichert's Certain Women, mm-hmm. which we've also talked about here and there. Uh, this is a sort of triptych film, uh, all ad- adaptations of stories by uh, Maylee Malloy about three women in this small town in Montana. Kelly Reichard's like the best American filmmaker working at this point, so I don't, you know, I don't know how much more I need to say about it other than just that. She gets the best that you can get out of out of the performers that she enlists. It's just very economic uh, storytelling and deeply, deeply moving and and very specific. I mean, she it's something I know she talks about a lot about the amount of research that she conducts uh, before shooting each film and really traveling across the country and getting to know these spaces. And I think that specificity is really felt in the work, not just in sort of the textures and the locales, but even just in the gestures that the actors make that feel kind of specific to, you know, the type of character that they're projecting. I think this is the best ensemble of any film that I've seen that go, you know, that goes beyond Laura Dern, Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, Lily Gladstone into people like Jared Harris and even James LeGros. I will say like it, it in some ways it's appears like deceptively simple, but especially with Miss Michelle Williams uh, passage of the film playing a character that is sort of so estranged from her life mm-hmm. and the dialogue exchange that she has between her and the older man who cannot even like acknowledge her presence. It's, 
really fascinating exchange that even after seeing the film twice, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to mitigate from it. Because there are these allusions to the way that these women are oppressed by uh, the patriarchal modes of our society, but that moment seems like there's there's something else going on there. Um, and I like that. I like that a film of this makeup that is about these type of characters and about this place still has that sort of ambiguity. And also, separate note, best costumes of 2016. Kristen Stewart's yellow sweater and her like washed out blue jeans. Gorgeous. Very 90s. Are, are terrific. Yeah. I started reading um, the short story from that's based on the third chapter of this film. And it's interesting to note that um, Lily Gladstone's character is a man in the short story. So I was like, oh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm excited to read more. Right, that speaks to I think the beauty of Kelly Records' choices. Yes, my sentiments exactly. Oh, Bill, what's what's what do you got for us? Uh, my number three is Things to Come, the Mia Hansen Love film. Um, we've already mm-hmm. talked about it a little bit. Uh, I would just say that um, yeah, I don't know. Like ultimately, if I prefer it to some of her maybe more rough around the edges coming of age stories like goodbye first love or Eden. Uh, but I do love it a lot. And um, it's a kind of a story where it sounds like a quaint melodrama. If you describe the events yeah. in it, but the thing that Hanson love always does is she sidestreps melodrama and it seems to be like her most distinctive strategy as far as, as a filmmaker is to take these situations that could play as a, as a, uh, as a more heightened thing. And, um, to, to, handles them kind of intellectually and very detachedly, but not in a way that is like cold or uh, you know um, off-putting. Like it's just it's just curious about the behavior of the character uh, in a way. I, I don't know. It's my favorite Isabelle Huppert film in a year where there's a couple of choices. And Valley of Love isn't on my list, but that's also really good. Um, but yeah, that's my number three. <laughs> and we were looking at the clock. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's true. That's very true. But um, I concur with your statements there. And number two is probably the uh, film that will get the most eye rolls courtesy of Zach, and that would be Arrival. Oh, I so wish we could. I know, I know. I don't want to get into the, the, I don't the most get dangerous into movie of 2016. I don't want to get into the ending. I know people are like. Oh, no, no, I'm not even talking about the ending. The only black character of the film actually assert that the white race is a more advanced people, and that's why the pygmies are wiped uh, out, and that you uh, encourage globalization, you know, global cooperation, and then by the end of the film, you become so myopic that it comes down to one woman and one choice. But oh I've my god! My, oh, <laughs> I've, I've asserted my, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, some of my problems. But well, you know what? I've 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 struggled. I can understand why you emotionally respond to the film. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I, but I've strongly considered doing a, when this comes out on Blu-ray, doing a debate. Because I've met so many film critics that hate it. I've met so many film critics that love it, that it is a total 
wonderful opportunity for some intense conversation about why we feel the way we feel about this film. And um, I will probably involve you in that, knowing your sentiments here. And you're definitely not alone. Um, I, I the mo- Most of the negative response does come from the ending and the, the choices made, per se. But I don't know. I found this movie to be incredible. I really did. I just, I love this director. I love the cinematography, the performances, and... You know, again, a, a simple bias, but it needs to be addressed. If you use that Max Richter piece that opens and closes this film, I'm a wreck. It's much like using a Seeger Rowe song. I'm just, I'm gone. And what this film sort of has to say about um, relationships between uh, a mother and daughter or a, a parent and a child, essentially, is is really profound and really special. And I love that a science fiction film, something like something like Contact, can really be less about the aliens and more about humanity. So, and if you hate the way this movie ends, I want to slap you in the face, but I understand. It's fine. Let's move on. We got to go. <laughs> My number two is Cemetery of Splendor, which has been touched upon here and there. Uh, I think the film's sort of formal structure is we talk about the slowness um, and how it has this very deliberate pace. But I, I do think that Joe, as his nickname is, is kind of trying to lull you into the same hypnotic sleep that the soldiers that we see within the film uh, are experiencing. And I think as a, you know, a film that is kind of about that surrealism is only expressed through kind of dialogue people's reiterating their experience of a dream or their past life or some kind of alternate history. I think the film is uh, deeply intriguing um, and profound. And I think the last shot or the, of the film with Jen staring at this, you know, massive hole in the ground is uh, while it's set to the DJ soulscape love is a song is like a deeply haunting um, image you know, I loved Uncle Boon Me and I've loved Tropic Malady and uh, the films that I've seen by the filmmaker. So this is just another another great film that feels like almost like an evolution of style to some degree. Yeah. Yes. My number uh, my number two, uh, it's, it's kind of like with last year's Heart of a Dog. It's a film I wish I could watch again with a notepad handy so I could discuss it better. But... Uh, Kirsten Johnson's camera person uh, really knocked me out. Uh, has probably m- more great moments than any other film I saw this, you know, 2016. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to really say about it. It's, it's, you know, I, I went in kind of a little bit anxious about like yeah, how the structure was going to work as far as like pulling all these pieces from other documentaries and finding uh, formal like a, a through line that made it all make sense. But uh, it just had more moments that, uh, you know, like I said, that that really uh, astonished me. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. So uh, that's my number two. Wow. Bill, you're psychic. Mm -hmm. Can you take a guess what my number one choice is for 2016? Um, Is it dirty grandpa? No, (gasps) no. Is it, is it camera person? (laughs) Correct. Camera person 
overlaid on top of Dirty <laughs> You play the two films together. Dirty camera person. <laughs> Dirty person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of uh, reasons why. I mean, I think I you know I mentioned that viewing experience of the red shoes. This is definitely up there too because. I, I went into this randomly, not knowing anything about it, and I saw it at the music box in the smaller theater, and I saw it all by myself. Um, I was shocked that, like, okay, I guess I'm going to watch this movie in this very... It was like being in a screening room with a very nice uh, projection, and it is the smaller theater, but okay, here I go. And I was with it from the title card on, in which the camera shakes a little bit as the thunderstorm is rolling in. Um and I know people have said, like, oh, it takes a while to warm up to its style of the way things are presented and everything. But I just got into it right from the start. Um, and, you know, like something like Heart of a Dog, I really emotionally was engaged throughout, even if, you know, you mentioned Zach, too. It's like, th- th- I'm sure, I mean, obviously, some of the films that she shot, including the Michael Moore one, isn't probably the strongest material. But good Lord, like, just the way she puts this all together like a collage, but a a journal at the same time is really remarkable. It is one of the greatest documentaries I've seen. And I mean, but it's also feels like a a personal um, artistic statements too, at the same time. So there are scenes like a daughter throwing her mother's belongings across a room. um, One involving a baby that we keep going back to just experiencing different cultures. To me, this is what great films and filmmaking are all about. And if you don't like it, I feel sorry for you. Okay. Woo-wee. I can't wait for this to come out in Criterion, too, next month. Okay. Uh, so my number one is a film titled 66 by Lewis Clark. Uh, this is a feature collage film, which is composed of 12 short films that are all kind of inspired by various Greek myths. Um, Lewis Clark has been making films, I think, since the early 1970s. Uh, he made a film back in 2012, 2011, called The Petty Fogger, which I personally think, if we're going to do best films of the decade list, is the best film of the decade. Oh. And I think 66 follows, hmm. follows suit as well. He would describe himself more as a reanimator than an animator because he th- these films basically are kind of constructed out of found materials. So it's taking like vintage images of popular culture, old comic books, uh, furniture advertisements, uh, any kind of pop culture ephemera from, you know, the 40s, 50s, or 60s that you can find sort of resurrecting those images and giving them new life in a new context in a completely new narrative and sort of redefining their meaning. So it's sort of like Sally from the comic book that you read when you were 10 is no longer Sally. Her identity has been completely transformed in this new context. Um, and he does not rely on verbal language uh, of any kind. So it really is 100% visual storytelling. And just the way that a character picking up and drinking a glass of water has to be realized in this context is such a sophisticated series and construct 
construction of images. Louis Clark's films evoke the feeling of dreams more so than anything I think I may have ever seen. <gasps> and I sometimes when I describe this film to myself, I just think of it like the loneliest little movie on earth because I think what he's using Greek mythology to explore is sort of um, the emphasis, emphasizing this presence of isolation and loneliness that you find in images of this period, that if you remove them from, if you remove the furniture from the ad in the life magazine and you repurpose it, suddenly that furniture looks very lonely and kind of tragic in this really touching way. He also like, reuses, reappropriates uh, Leonard Cohen music Uh-oh. set over this uh, shadow lit comic book sequence where it's like two comic books on top of each other um, and the images are bleeding into one another set to some Leonard Cohen music. He repurposes Elmer Bernstein's score to Some Came Running which is a gorgeous score. Um, it just is like really exploratory, exciting uh, formalism and and kind of creating a new form in a lot of ways. It's been around for a while, but it's a difficult film to talk about without like really just describing what you see in some ways. But it's, it's a film that I look forward to, you know, looking at repeatedly. Uh, and I, whenever people can see it, I strongly encourage that they take that opportunity. Will do, sir. Sorry, my cat's bugging me. <laughs> She's biting my leg. Okay, I'll feed you soon. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, well, my, <laughs> my number one is Iolga Hepnarova, uh, oh, which yeah. we've already talked about a little bit. And I don't have too much to add to the story. I just... Um, I mean, for me, it was the most moving thing I saw in 2016. Uh, it was one of the most beautiful films, uh, it, uh, you know, cinematography-wise. Um, it's I didn't even know what the story was. I almost feel uh, bad that it's you know people will know in advance what the outcome is for this character. And I, I guess it is a popular enough story for um, that most people are expected to know the tragic outcome for the character. I didn't know anything going into it. And so everything yeah. unfolded in a way that was uh, ex- exciting and surprising to me. But even without the element of surprise, I think it's just a really funny and sexy and atmospheric film. Uh, in a way, this may be a shallow comparison, but with something like Ida from a couple of years ago, the um, the way that it uses the um, the visual style that might recall like a certain kind of art house uh, film of uh, European art house film, it, it seems to it seems to employ like a similar strategy. So there might be some comparisons to it when it comes out theatrically in March. But um, I don't know. It's, I think it's a much deeper, more interesting film than even that film, which I know has some detractors among my friends, but I still like that one too. But uh, yeah, no, I, Olga Hepnerova, I, it's, it's funny because we initially talked about uh, only including films with a U.S. theatrical release for this list. And I, I sometimes have mixed feelings about uh, people including uh, things that they saw at festivals on lists like this. But uh, I know that not everyone listening to this podcast is even a U.S.-based listener. You know, so it's 
it's kind of arbitrary that kind of rule. So I, I agree. I, I did want you know to make sure that that you know in March I don't know if this film will have like a lot of muscle behind it in terms of money to uh, promote that it's out there, but. Uh, people should check this thing out because it's really one of the best things of recent years. And uh, it, I don't know if it's going to get uh, overshadowed by, you know, I don't know what else is coming out in March, but make it, make an opportunity, you know, get, get to see this on the big screen if you can. Please. I think you should see all of the films we've included on our list, which you can find at directorsclubpodcast.com in this, in this episode's show notes. Which, um, yeah, very excited to um, go back and look at your lists and uh, jot down some titles that, including Zach, your number one is is that available anywhere? Or we just have to, much like the Illinois Parables, do our homework and wait. Yeah, it's a similar situation where it it surprisingly screens kind of everywhere except New York. <laughs> oh, I'll keep it's my played eye in out. much more obscure pockets of the country but uh his first film is uh, well not his first film but his other feature film i mentioned the petty fogger is available on fandor the petty fucker petty fogger oh okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right well yeah i mean i'll just really quickly and I'm, I'm you guys don't have to do this if you don't want to but a few more <laughs> the love witch everybody wants some jackie the lobster don't breathe green room uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, The Handmaiden, and Louder Than Bombs were also films that I really loved. Oh, um, hold on. You don't have to if you're not prepared. I just sort of just threw those out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, let me think. Uh, I liked, uh, give me a second here. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, author, the JT Leroy story I liked a lot. Um, uh, da 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 da. Tale of Tales, Tale of Tales, yeah. I liked a lot. Uh, Too Late, Wiener, I liked a lot. The documentary, um, yeah, I forgot to mention that one. Uh, Sympathy and for the Wiener Dog, Wiener Dog, I liked a lot. Also, the Todd Salons film, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, the true story of the Process Church of the Final Judgment by Neil Edwards. I know that's only doing festivals, but that's really fantastic. Um, no Home Movie, the uh, Chantal Ackerman film is really great. Uh, Neon Bull, Gabrielle Mascaro. Uh, that's that's on uh, Netflix right now. That's another one that uh, I nearly included on the list. Um, the Lure, I think that's coming out theatrically uh, through Janus Film, so it'll probably wind up in the Criterion Collection, but that's a uh, very fun, sexy, horror comedy type thing. Uh, Love and Friendship, the Whit Stillman film, I think we mentioned. Um, the Laundryman, uh, Chung Lee, uh, very funny uh, kind of action comedy cult thing i don't know how to describe that one but i saw it at the uh, new york asian film new york asian film festival and i thought that was really good um yeah uh, oh and the eyes of my mother uh nicholas uh, peche I, I know that jim you were like a little less keen on this one but i thought this was one of the best uh art house horror type hybrid films uh, really one of the most beautiful looking horror films i've seen in a long time oh yeah another one with great cinematography yeah and and uh yeah, and uh, I, oh. I know I mentioned the one scene from it, but Malgré la Nuit, uh, Despite the Night, Philip Grandrier, that's, uh, that's one I hope comes out in America next year, but it's really powerful. Mm. Okay, Zach. Throw, yeah, do, throw do, not, do not resist uh, okay, as well. well. I th- <laughs> Shin Godzilla is actually a much better film than it has any business being. 
you know, there's a flurry of like experimental shorts. Uh, the only, the only other thing I'll mention though, is, uh, earlier this year, Stan Douglas, who's a, uh, photographer, he did an adaptation of Joseph, Con- Joseph Conrad's, uh, the secret agent, which he adapted into like a six screen channel installation, which I got a chance to see that I thought was really interesting, like in its its use of those six screens. Starless Dreams is a great documentary. Hmm. Did you like Night of Cups? I haven't seen Night of Cups okay. actually. Yeah, I've been I I I, I didn't get around to it either, and I'm curious. I defended to the wonder. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and I know that Night of Cups has been a film that's been largely maligned, but yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure that it's fine. I liked it. I think, yeah, Bill liked it. I did like it. Yeah. Holy Christ Almighty Jesus Lord, this is it. We've done it. Yay! Thanks, guys, for being uh, a part of the best of 20 or favorite films of 26. I don't want to say best because we're, we're, we're we have no right to tell you what is the best. We just want to tell you what our favorites are of 2016. Um and my farewell to America and the rest of the world. And uh thank you guys again. Let's uh hear where we can find more of your work. Bill, I know you have a great podcast that's returning soon. Yes, uh supporting characters uh it's- you can find it uh, now playing network.net slash supporting characters. It's also on iTunes. And uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about it in a rush, but uh, yeah, it's me talking to people that have channeled their interest in film into some kind of project or vocation. Uh, Jim's been on the show. Patrick Rapal, the former director's club co-host has been on the show and lots of people, Kayla Janice and Travis Crawford and Violet Luca and Daniel Bird, Sam Deegan, Heather Drain. Um, but yeah, um, it's coming back in a couple of months. I already have a lot of good people lined up to talk to, so we'll see. And Zach, what are you up to? I know you still have that film jive show. Yes, we do. It's kind of infrequent at this point, but hopefully maybe later this month or in February we'll start uh, returning to sort of a more consistent schedule. Uh, but you can you can find the show on iTunes, Facebook filmjive.blogspot.com I'm also on Letterboxd I think that's about it Oh, great Well, guys, it's been fun Are we going to read some lists? Oh, yes they are Here are the rest of the listener lists Courtesy of Zach and Bill Thank you, guys You guys are good Alright, so uh, Patrick Rapal from Chicago, Illinois his number one is Illinois Parables. Number two is The Witch. Number three is Son of Saul. Number four is The Lobster. Number five, Moonlight. Number six, Mustang. Number seven, OJ Made in America. Number eight, Everybody Wants Some. Number nine, The Love Witch. Number 10, Hush. Number 11, The Handmaiden. Number 12, Hunt for the Wilder People. Number 13, My Golden Days. 14, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Number 15, The Nice Guys, which I also liked. I didn't mention that earlier. Number 16 is Hell or High Water. Number 17 is Green Room. Number 18 is Another Evil. Number 19 is Hail Caesar. Number 20 is Maggie's Plan. Okay, and then we have Valerie Richardson from Raleigh, North Carolina. Her number 10 is L. Her number 9, The Wailing. 
Number eight, Trash Fire. Number seven, La La Land. Number six, The Nice Guys. Number five, Life Animated. Number four, Martin Scorsese's Silence. Number three, Moonlight. Number two, The Witch. And number one, Jackie. Okay, and Martin Kessler from Canada. He says, best wishes and hopes for the new year. Thank you so much for everything you've done with Directors Club and the Now Playing Network. You were a major inspiration for me to become involved in podcasting. I look forward to all your future endeavors, which is very nice. Um, his his uh, number one is American Honey. Number two is Knight of Cups. Number three is Anthropoid. Number four, L. Number five, The Witch. Number six, Cosmos. Number seven, Cali Blues. Number eight, Cemetery of Splendor. Number nine, The Innocence. Number ten, Under Electric Clouds. Brian Tallarico, film critic and editor at RogerEbert.com, who is also a former guest of the Directors Club podcast. His number 10 is Midnight Special, number 9, American Honey, number 8, Camera Person, number 7, The Handmaiden, number 6, Jackie, number 5, OJ, Made in America, number 4, Silence, number 3, Patterson, number 2, Manchester by the Sea, and number 1, Moonlight. Okay, and uh, Rolf... Eichhorn from Germany. Out of 320 movies I've watched in 2016, most which are mostly first-time watches, I picked the following 10 movies. Number 10, he has The Most Beautiful Wife from uh, Damiano Damiani. Number 9, he has Sweet Bean, uh, directed by Naomi Kawasi. Number 8, he has The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers. Number 7, Woodjob, directed by Shinobi Yaguchi. Number 6, The Hunter, directed by Daniel Nethai. Uh, number five, The Final Hours, directed by Zach Hilditch. Number four, Metro Manila, directed by Sean Ellis. Number three, Montage, directed by, I don't know, is it, is it uh, Yoon Suk Young? I'm not I'm butchering that. Good enough. Yes. Number two, the, A Hard Day, directed by Sung Hon Kim. Number one, Sabora, directed by Stefano Solima. Uh, Caleb Wright from New York, New York. Number 10, Personal Shopper. Number 9, Swiss Army Man. Number 8, Sing Street. Number 7, Tower. Number 6, The Handmaiden. Number 5, L. Number 4, Arrival. Number 3, Green Room. Number 2, Hail Caesar. Number 1, Everybody Wants Some. Okay, David, uh, no, I'm sorry, Davis Mayfield from Kalamazoo. Uh, he has number 10, Tower. Number 9, Embrace of the Serpent, which is another good one we didn't talk about. Number 8, Midnight Special. Number 7, Don't Breathe. Number 6, Krisha. Number 5, Certain Women. Number 4, Weeder. Number 3, The Witch. Number 2, Loving. Number 1, Swiss Army Man. Cody Lang from the Still Watching the Skies podcast. His number 10 is Moonlight. Number 9 is Number nine is Kaylee Blues. Number eight, Yourself and Yours. Number seven, The Mermaid. Number six, Three, uh, the Johnny Toe film. Number five, OJ Made in America. Number four, Everybody Wants Some. Number three, The Lobster. Number two, High Rise. Number one, L. Okay, Robert Reinecke from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He has number 10, Arrival. Number nine, The Wailing. Number eight, Green Room. Number seven, Sing Street. Number six, Embrace of the Serpent. Number five, The Witch. Number four, OJ Made in America. Number three, The Fits. Number two, Loving. Number one, Moonlight. Jape Man. Number ten, Nobody Walks in L.A. <laughs> number nine, nine, Inside Scarlet. Number eight, Backgammon. Number seven, If There's a Hell Below. Number six, Girl Asleep. Number five, We Paw Away for Now. Number four, Helen Alone. Number three, Quitters. Number two, The Automatic Hate. And number one, Lamb. Are you familiar with any of those films, Bill? Uh, let me look at his list. Oh, um, no. No, I'm not. I wasn't sure if he was... I reviewed Lamb and it, I didn't think it was very good. Yeah, I've, I've heard... I wasn't sure if he was just naming uh, 
song titles in there. No, <laughs> yeah, I've 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 heard of them. I've not heard of the rest. I feel very out of touch. Um, Gina Reinhold, uh, Venus of Venus on Letterboxd, has number ten, The Eyes of My Mother. Number nine, The Fits. Number eight, Camera Person. Number seven, Hunt for the Wilder People. Number six, Twentieth Century Women. Number five, Certain Women. Uh, four, Don't Think Twice. Number three, L. Number two, The Lobster. Number one, Arrival. Uh, Daniel Baldwin, who's a former guest on the Toby Hooper and Wes Craven Craven episodes. His number 10 is I Am Not a Serial Killer. Number 9, Everybody Wants Some. Number 8, Gods of Egypt. Number 7, Manchester by the Sea. Number 2, The Conjuring 2. Number 5, Kubo in the Two Strings. Number 4, Arrival. Number 3, The Mind's Eye. Number 2, Hunt for the Wilder People. And number 1, The Nice Guys. Okay, uh, Dan Solomon, the Austin-based journalist, uh, doesn't number the films. I don't know if there's a uh, intended order, but uh, he has Moonlight, Hello, My Name is Doris, Zootopia, The Handmaiden, Hell or High Water, Captain America Civil War, Hunt for the Wilder People, Hidden Figures, Mona, and The Edge of Seventeen. Wow! Thank you, guys. You did a great job. Seriously. That was a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, interesting. There's some interesting choices sprinkled throughout there, for sure. Um, any comments going go, going through those? Anything that stood out that um, seemed peculiar or <laughs> I don't know. Anything I didn't see Hunt for the Wilder People, but it seems to be a yeah. very popular film. It's, very, it's very charming. Yeah, it is very very good. I enjoyed it as well. I like it when people put pop star. Never stop, never stopping on their list. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, Amy Nicholson also put that on her list. Yeah, I haven't seen that one myself yet. I just didn't catch up. I don't up think with you'd it. like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that kind of humor would appeal to you necessarily, but it, I found it. I found it pleasurable. I enjoyed it. Well, I'll, I'll check it out. Yes. Well, guys, once again, thank you so much for your time, for your efforts, for your energy, for your voices, for your big old brains. Thank you for having me, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, we'll talk it's, again. It's a great, great honor to be here during your final episode. Yeah. It doesn't feel real yet. <laughs> it's just like, well, I'm still here, but just not in the same way anymore. But we'll be okay. We'll see each other again in the cosmos. I don't know what that means. So, once again, everybody, you better stay tuned to both supporting characters, Film Jive, and of course, this here podcast called Director's Club, which Patrick Rapol and I started um, January 1st, 2011, six-year anniversary. Uh, wouldn't have ever have done this without him. And, uh, you know, I continued for as long as I could without him. And I had a great time doing so. I had a great time talking with all the guests. Um, and... I certainly appreciate all the support and fans and friendship that has resulted um, from my favorite endeavor that I've done to date. So thank you again, everybody, and we'll see you next year. um, Well, it is next year. Wait a minute. It is this year already. (laughs) It's it's 2017, and you have Danny Boyle to look forward to in uh, about three weeks with the new hosts of Directors Club. I'll be there to make sure nothing goes wrong. (laughs) And uh, thanks again. Visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of this episode and any other episodes from the past, present, and future. Okay, everybody. Thanks again. And for the last and final time, I love you, Patrick. (laughs) 
My parents took me to go see Gordy. (laughs) So, and and I was like literally young enough where I was arguing with people being like, babe, with the talking animals, that's so stupid. Gordy was awesome. (laughs) Wait, you fought Gordy was... I fought, I fought for Gordy. I was a noble warrior in the army of Gordy. You should defend that. And any, like, movies... You know, you know how Columbia College has their cinema slapdown. I want to see you defend Gordy. Listen! I know Pig in the City's all dark and weird, but in Gordy, he went to Hollywood, and there was a scene where he was wearing sunglasses. sunglasses.